This is Truth Frequency Radio. The following program may not be suitable for millennials under the age of 40. Parental discretion is strongly advised. And now, the most offensive radio talk show host on the planet, Pete Santilli. Okay. Now, as I as I mentioned, uh, and she is on the run. She has a busy schedule, and uh, you're going to hear her voice. And I want to give you a very limited uh, introduction because there's a lot of information to cover here. But this is what I will say: is that in 2018, and I'm not overblowing this right now, and I think our listenership agreed overwhelmingly. In 2007, uh, 2018, 2017, 2018, uh, we, Deb and I, here on this show, not only admired her for her courage, uh, we appreciated her work. We actually studied her work and learned and, and reported uh, her work. She's an investigative journalist that uncovered some of the most important stories of our lifetime, period, as an investigative journalist, covering stories about the world that we live in. And she is fearless traveling the world, going all the way to Israel uh, to cover the, the story regarding the, the terrorists, Hamas, mingled among the, the shoeless, oh, poor little Palestinian people. That's a method of, of getting uh, terrorists uh, to infiltrate the nation of, of Israel and blow people up. She covered that. She covered it appropriately. Going all the way to Minnesota to cover on the political scene, those individuals that have hijacked our electoral system uh, by running for political office to infiltrate our constitutional republic and then to advocate for Sharia law, female mutilation. She says, I absolutely oppose that. And she's an advocacy journalist that we so much admired. We presented her to our listening audience uh, on uh, New Year's. We uh, consider her to us to be the top most important investigative journalist of 2018. Our listenership agreed. And then you're about to find out why, because we're going to start 2019. Laura Loomer uh, joins me. She's out on the road right now, so she can't join me by video. Uh, and, and Laura, I, I'm not just overblowing this. Uh, not only did we say that you were on the list of those most admired investigative journalists, our listenership agreed that you covered some of the most important wow. stories of our age. Okay, seriously. Well, thank you, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you so much. It's so it's so touching to hear that. And it's a pleasure, of course, to program again. Thank you so much for having me on again. It's, it's great. And Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year. Happy New Year. And you know what, let's let's do this. Let's, let's get, right to, get right to work because uh, almost the entire first hour, uh, I covered uh, a topic uh, that that affects each and every listener. I literally could not, Laura, I could not type what the topic was going to be about. Because if I do that on YouTube, on all these other uh, platforms where we stream out, on, on Periscope, on Twitter, we would literally be shut down if I typed what we were going to talk about relative to the Las Vegas shooting. And you know what I'm talking about because right. you can't speak of, and I'm going to throw to you right now, you can't speak of the fact that Imran Awan was elected into office and she's a supporter of Sharia law and female mutilation. She actually advocated 
for both of those things. You speak out about that. What happens to somebody when they do that, Laura? You get banned, you get silenced, you get shut down, and you're essentially erased from the internet, just like I was. I was banned on Twitter, I was banned on Facebook, I was banned by GoFundMe, banned by Uber, banned by Lyft. I mean, honestly, the list of places I haven't been banned from is probably shorter because I just get banned everywhere simply for reporting the truth and speaking truth about terrorism, Islam, and Sharia. And, you know, this is something that people like to hide. They like to hide these terrorist connections and uh, Islamification and infiltration that is taking place in our country. And one of the things that I've been on your program a lot talking about uh, is the Las Vegas shooting. And there's an element to this, of course, um, with with regarding ISIS and kind of these, uh, you know, this, these unspoken uh, pieces of evidence, right? that we have seen pop up regarding the Las Vegas shooting investigation, which strongly suggests that ISIS was responsible. And most recently, believe it or not, you know, they are still releasing evidence pertaining to the Vegas shooting and officer statements. And just five days ago, the LVMPD released 18 voluntary statements made by officers who responded to the Las Vegas shooting. And in one of the documents, which was a statement of, um, uh, made by Sergeant William Machko from LVMPD just two days after the shooting. He talks about how when they went into the room, it looked like Stephen Paddock had been dead much longer than somebody who committed suicide upon officers entering the room. And that while his body was still, um, you know, in the room dead, they found him there dead and they, they, they didn't seem to um, see anybody else in the room. According to the statement, they were still looking for active shooters and working with counterterrorism. And so, you know, throughout this entire time, we've been told that there was uh, only one shooter, that Stephen Paddock was a lone wolf. But if you listen to these officer statements and you read these officer statements, which have been hidden from the public, the media has completely abandoned the, the story regarding the Las Vegas shooting, you will see that the information presented in these officer statements, eyewitness reports, some people who were in the room and saw Paddock's body themselves completely contradict what is in the official LVMTG fit report. And it's really scary because it really just makes you wonder, like, what else is our government hiding from us? What else are they not telling us? What else happened in that room or that night that is not inside the official LVMTG report? And now, Laura, you can I see that they're talking about... Go on. Now, this is what I want to do. Also, let me back up a, a little bit. I'm going to back up just for the benefit of, because I know your story. You know your story very well. Now I'm going to back up for somebody that's hearing your voice for the first time. And I'll never, ever, ever forget. Mm -hmm. Before I even spoke with you, I heard you speaking to Sheriff Lombardo. He's at the podium and he's talking about inconsistencies. Go back to that time when he was reporting on on the uh, what they called the nation's you know biggest, most horrifying uh, terror attack, uh, of course, at at this thing. What were the inconsistencies right. at the podium? Talk about Sheriff Lombardo and tell us what he did to you when you were right. asking questions. Yeah, so Sheriff Lombardo, of course, immediately after the Las Vegas shooting came out and said that Stephen Paddock was a single shooter and that it wasn't an act of terrorism because, as you know, hours after the shooting, ISIS came out and took responsibility for the Las Vegas shooting, which left 58 people dead. But not only that, you know, Sheriff Lombardo said that uh, Paddock was alone in the room and that Paddock killed himself uh, moments before SWAT entered the suite at Mandalay Bay. 
And now you're starting to see through all these statements that Sheriff Lombardo is a liar, just like I said. And when I was on the ground in Vegas the first week after the Las Vegas shooting, I obtained receipts and broke the story about how Stephen Paddock actually checked into Mandalay Bay on the 25th of September, not the 28th. And from the get-go, Lombardo knew that Paddock checked in on the 25th, but at the press conference with the FBI, they were telling the American people he checked in on the 28th. I also obtained receipts that showed that there were uh, room service orders for multiple people in the room, not just Paddock. And so when I brought this evidence to the, um, I believe it was, you know, the second Las Vegas shooting press conference, mm -hmm. and I confronted Lombardo about his lies, you know, he kind of looked at Aaron Rouse, who's the, who's the head of the FBI out there in Vegas, and they banned me from all future LVMPD press conferences. And then when they had to change their official timeline because of my reporting, they canceled all future press conferences, and there were there were no more press conferences regarding the Las Vegas shooting. They kind of just uh, put a ban on all of their employees at the LVMPD from speaking to members of the media about what transpired in that room. And these officer statements are so important because they show you know, they show crime scene contamination. They show lies made by officers who entered the room. I mean, a full-blown cover-up. If you recall, one of the sergeants, I believe his name is, well, Officer McDonald, had stated that the officers witnessed Stephen Paddock. Yeah, his name is Sergeant Jerry McDonald. That he stated in his, his statement that officers witnessed Stephen Paddock commit suicide. But then this officer said that when they went into the room, Stephen Paddock appeared to have been dead much longer than the hour that took place between the last shots being fired onto the crowd at the Route 91 concert and the hour it took for them to get into the room, right? Because if you recall, it took them an hour to get into Paddock's room. Mm. And you have an officer here saying that the blood was already coagulated. Wow. Okay, now, uh, can you also verify, because they they denied reports of multiple shooters, um, can you tell right. can you tell us have you heard the 911 audio calls of people up and down the strip indicating that there were like at the Bellagio the the, the person at the desk right. called 911 and said there's a guy in here shooting people uh did you hear those 911 well, that's, calls that's the thing that's the thing. It's not even just the calls, right? So so it's very important that people know the timeline because a lot of people don't know that it took LVMPD an, almost an hour, a little over an hour, to get from the, uh, the location of the shooting, of course, from the time the shooting started mm -hmm. to Stephen Paddock's room. So between that time, right, they supposedly Stephen Paddock killed himself, they said, right before they went into the room. So that would have been an hour after the shooting. Mm -hmm. Then there were reports that Stephen Paddock killed himself directly after the shooting. So, you know, but you have these officers here stating that they witnessed him oh. kill himself, but oh, then other right. sergeants saying that his body appeared to have been, uh, you know, dead much longer. But the reason why, <laughs> why this is important is because this officer, this is a direct quote, said, as they walked into the room, mind you, on the radio, there's, a million other active shooters. So this is while Stephen Paddock is dead an hour after the last shots were fired, right, onto the crowd at the concert, and you have officers in their statements saying that they're still getting reports on the radio of active shooters, a million other active shooters. 
this isn't just in the in the you know the 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 spur of the moment as shots were being fired while Stephen Paddock was still alive. This was when officers were in the room. They were looking at Paddock's dead body, and they they were saying in their statements that there's a million other active shooters. Right. So who are those other shooters? Who are they? You know, now, now let's uh, push the pause button. Now I want you to speculate with me because we can only speculate. We don't know the truth because every time we ask the truth, we get kicked off of the Internet. Uh, so let's have this discussion right. right now. Why? I mean, this is a massive cover up right now. You've, you've watched this cover up. Right. place. This is the biggest cover up is, I've ever is, seen. This is proof of the cover up. If you if you read my article on my website, lauralumer.us, you'll see I outline the officer statements. And if you look at what. Some of the officers are saying compared to the others, the statements cannot be true at the same time. You cannot say that the blood was coagulated and Paddock's body appeared to have been dead for hours prior to you entering the room when it only took an hour for officers to get, you know, into the room from the time that the shooting began. And then another officer saying that they witnessed Paddock kill himself, right? So why are officers lying and why is nothing being done about this? Yes. And how come the media isn't? putting more scrutiny on these officer statements. Okay. And if you compare, uh, for instance, uh, what was it, Pettis? Uh, okay, they go in and say, we're going to, and I have your, your article up on the screen right now. We're going to blow this other door um, as they walk into the room. Mind you, on the radio, there's a million other active shooters being called out in these other hotels. We also hear uh, 911 calls. I listen to the 911 calls of those shootings not only were there active shooters on the radio that this guy just validated in his report but there were in fact people calling in shootings at other hotels up and down the strip correct exactly yes. and they're validated in this officer's statement that there were like he said quote a million other active shooters at the time paddock was dead so if stephen paddock was the only shooter like lombardo and the fbi have said and he was dead upon them making the statement who was shooting inside these other hotels yes. and then if you look at some the rest of the statement he said he received a call from Cassiano who told him that they need to um get the ids in the room and they need to get cell phones so that they can quote identify the rest of quote these shooters they said we need to figure out who the rest of these shooters are because we're going to try to do wiretaps on the phones well what do you mean you're going to do wiretaps on the phones, right? Multiple phones. So so they're obviously aware of some type of terror network or multiple shooters using some type of electronic system to coordinate uh, their activities. And if you recall, in the aftermath of the shooting, it was revealed that there was an elaborate uh, wire system set up outside of Paddock's room at Mandalay Bay where baby monitor yep. cameras were used. And, of course, baby monitor cameras allow you to transmit a signal Laura, wirelessly anywhere else. Laura, and they were monitoring. Laura, I have a hard break here. Stay with me over the break, okay? Uh, we're, we're going, oh, no, we're not. Hold on a second. We're uh, we're 15 minutes away from the break. I have a hard break. Are you going to be able to stay with me for, let's say, 45 minutes or so? Yeah, yeah, Is I can good? stay. I can okay. stay. Okay, fantastic. Um, the exigent circumstances that was referenced in this report. I, I remember reading this on your on your website. I'm like, what the hell are exigent circumstances that would cause, I mean, like to, to ask the police officers at a crime scene that you know is a major one uh, to disturb that crime scene? What would be the exigent circumstances that would require them to contaminate a crime scene? Are there any? Well, 
you're not supposed to contaminate a crime scene, obviously. I mean, if you, everybody, everybody knows this. But the, when I say contaminate a crime scene, what they did is prior to taking any pictures, right? Prior to taking any pictures and documenting it and, and documenting evidence and looking for, you know, other individuals, they flipped Paddock's body. And so they said, oh, the reason why they needed to flip Paddock's body is so that they could help identify the other shooters. The whole purpose of flipping Paddock's body wasn't to look at Paddock's body so the rest of the shooters because they wanted to do wiretaps on the phones. Well, and if you're thinking about doing wiretaps as soon as you get inside the room, well, then you probably have an idea as to who an individual is communicating with. And we never, if you recall, after the shooting, we never got more information about that system that was set up in which Paddock or whoever was in the room and the room next door to Paddock was monitoring the activity in the hallway. And who was on the receiving end of that? Because as you know, baby baby monitor cameras allow for wireless transmission. So somebody was receiving somewhere in the world or maybe even in, in Nevada or Las Vegas, who knows where, they were receiving the other end of this transmission, of this of this recording, because Paddock was 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 monitoring. There was there was audio and video recording. If you, were, you know, right. this was in the report. It was on the it was on the room service tray. Remember? Yes, yes, absolutely. So somebody was monitoring that. There is a recording, and I'm also hearing is this true um, that uh, that some of the LVMPD officers were told to turn off their body cams. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean this was this is this is old news. I mean that's something I reported several months ago. Right. But yes, so when you have SWAT officers like Levi Hancock, who is the first SWAT officer to go into the room, and he doesn't have his body camera on, and then they're taking pictures of the body and flipping the body, and they're while he's dead looking for IDs so that upon captain orders they can identify the other shooters. Well, clearly Stephen Paddock wasn't you know, the only shooter, if upon entering the room, they were frantically searching for other phones and still getting calls of active shooters. Mm. So my point is, is the reason why these statements are so damning is because it is, you know, it's solid evidence that that they are lying, right? And I've said this multiple times, that they're lying about what happened when they entered the room and, and Stephen Paddock being the only shooter, because it doesn't even match their official timeline, which has been, you know, changed so many times now. I mean, I'm sure everybody can agree that the timeline given by the LVMPD and the FBI regarding the Las Vegas shooting is is not is not um, reliable, right? Because they've they've lied to us. I mean, they literally lied and said that he checked in on the 28th when he checked in on the 25th, right? Mm. And now we're finding out through these officer statements that when his body was dead they were still getting calls for other active shooters, active shooters. and they That's were trying to wiretap someone's phone whose okay. phone were they trying to wiretap yeah who and why why were they concerned about other other people and other shooters obviously because they were receiving telephone calls on the radio right or uh, calls out on the radio yeah an hour an hour an hour after the last shots were fired right because this is the thing a lot of people will say, oh, well, of course they were getting reports of multiple shooters because you could hear gunfire all throughout the city. But we're talking about an hour after the last shots were fired, right? Because it took them forever. They didn't go inside the room as soon as Stephen Paddock or whoever was shooting. They claim it was Stephen Paddock, right? They didn't go inside the room until nearly an hour after the and last shots were fired. Have they indicated why so they didn't go in the room? firing shots? 
Is there any what? reason, have they indicated why they, they chose to wait that long to go into the room? Well, if you, uh, I know Tucker Carlson actually showed this video on his show, surprisingly, because the mainstream media hasn't really done a lot to report on the Vegas shooting. But you, there's video footage of these officers just kind of like waiting in the hallway and they're not going upstairs and they were, they were taking forever. So, I mean, I guess they had to identify which room it was coming out of and, uh, you know, they, yeah. they, they were claiming they had radio issues, but, you know, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense logically here. If, Stephen Paddock was the only shooter, right? And he killed himself after after the shooting took place. Or he killed himself upon officers entering the room, like that one officer said in his official statement, right? Yes. Why yeah. would they still be receiving calls that there were a million other active shooters carrying out shootings in hotels? You know what I'm saying? It doesn't make sense. Is a dead man going to be shooting a gun? No. So clearly somebody is lying here and... You know, we all we all know we're, we've been lied to. It's just more evidence. And it's sad because the mainstream media has chosen to not do a deep dive into these officer statements. I saw there were some mainstream media reports about these statements being released. But the only thing they said is officers recall what they saw the night of the shooting. But they didn't go into the statements like I did and dissect them and point out the contradictions and the inconsistencies, which show that these officers are lying. Yes. You know, you, you cannot say... You witnessed Paddock kill himself and then have another sergeant say that the blood had already been coagulated and he looked like he'd been dead for much longer than an hour. Mm -hmm. That's right. You should have had the same observation, right? If you were, if you right? were not, if you were, if, if you entered the room at the same time, you'd have the same observation. That's right. That's right. Now, uh, is there, uh, is there any, um, is there any indication that the FBI has been running around trying to cover up? And I'm saying any, any indication. I'm not talking about, you know, rumor and speculation on the Internet. Have you heard of any instances where the FBI followed up on, on leads with witnesses and then told them to keep their mouth shut? Do you know of any specific instances like that? Yeah, I mean, I was communicating with sources in the aftermath of the, um, of the Las Vegas shooting who – who were telling me that the FBI essentially told them that they should not talk. talk to they told them to keep their mouth shut. So yeah, I have I have heard that. Okay. And I don't think that the FBI is very trustworthy in this situation because, mind you, they said that we were going to be receiving the official FBI report during the one year anniversary. Well, that was October of 2018, and here we are now into 2019, and we still don't have the FBI report on the Las Vegas shooting. Mm. Now you mentioned that uh, that there's indications that uh, that ISIS because they they claim responsibility for it. But what about the evidence that ISIS was involved? Is there any evidence that you've been able to see from uh, from these disclosures and these uh, these public releases? Right. Well, I would, there's a lot, and it, it takes a long time to delve into because there's so many moving parts to this investigation. Mm -hmm. So I would just recommend that people who want to see the evidence go to my website warlumer.us mm -hmm. and you read uh, one of my articles that titled uh we need to talk about isis from the las vegas shooting and it's a very long detailed article that outlines the evidence and you'll see all the documentation uh for yourself it's just too much information to break down into a radio segment yeah and you uh and you documented that and what repeat the uh, uh the the title of of that article because I, i'm actually i'm going to put all the links in uh, today's episode repeat the title of that article that you published 
It should be called We Need to Talk About ISIS and the Las Vegas Shooting. I'm looking at the website. Yeah, it's called We Need to Talk About ISIS and the Las Vegas Shooting. It's from April of 2018. April of 2018. And it's got all the details. And you've spent yeah. uh, countless hours pouring through all of this stuff uh, right from day one, correct? Right. Yes. Um, another, another I mean, I was on the ground. I was on the ground immediately, yes. Yeah. You were. Okay. Now, now when they shut down uh, the uh, the press conferences, they also banned you from attending any press conferences. Did anybody approach you directly and tell you, you know, you better, you better pipe down and shut up, Laura, or did they just cut you out of the loop? Yeah, there was uh, there was one of the women who was uh, working in the PIO office at LVMPD who told me that I wasn't allowed to come back, and she took my name and my number, and they pretty much blacklisted me. And then Sheriff Lombardo, of course, went on went on television on Channel Eight in Las Vegas and gave an interview in which he said that I was a conspiracy theorist and that my questions had no grounds whatsoever, and that you know none of the information that I was saying was was true, but. Mind you, this is the same guy who was forced to hold a press conference after I exposed the fact that he was covering up a string of MS-13 uh, brutal gang murders in which MS-13 was was uh, murdering people near Lake Mead and dumping their bodies. And Lombardo tried covering it up. And one day or two days or so after I broke this story on Twitter, which now I'm banned from, ironically, he was forced to have a press conference. So, you know, he likes to he likes to try to discredit me and keep me out of events because I seem to be one of the only people holding him accountable, whether I'm laying on the beach in Florida or, you know, on an airplane on my Wi-Fi while all these other journalists or so-called, you know, wannabe reporters in Nevada aren't really doing their job. They're not holding him accountable. They're not asking him any questions. You know, why is it why is it that I from my cell phone am able to break bigger stories regarding uh, you know, crimes and investigations in Nevada when I don't even live there? Right. And it's because the media is completely complicit with Lombardo and the LVMPD and they've been complicit in this entire cover up. Uh, since the time of the Vegas shooting. Laura, what to, do, do you think that it has to do with uh, terrorism? And by the way, uh, hold the answer uh, to that question when we come. This is a hard break. This is the one that I have to go to TFR on. And we'll come back. It's a three-minute break, okay? But I, I want you to answer the question, uh, and we can only speculate. Is it a matter of economics? Was it just such a horrifying... Uh, they were to admit that we had ISIS you just come running up and down the strip shooting people that economically they couldn't withstand that hit. Is that why they're covering this up as a matter of, quote, unquote, national security? We need to keep the people docile yeah, and compliant. There, there's, a, there's an element of that also. Yeah. But look, they also just banned bump stocks. It's more convenient to say yes, that it's that an too. issue of guns instead of admitting that it's a problem of Islamic terrorists. Okay, stay right there. Uh, we'll be back with you right after we're going to cut away to uh, TFR here. You're listening to Truth Frequency Radio, the Pete Santilli Show. I'm with Laura Loomer. We'll be back right after this short message, you guys. Do not go away. Hey, everyone. Pete Santilli here. I want to let you know that this broadcast is brought to you in part by our friends at Rugged Reserves. Our Patriot flashlight is a must-have for every e-militia member. Just think about it. When you pack your bug-out bag, you want everything from glass-breaking hammer to a cell phone charger to a flashlight to a wire cutter and compass. Well, you can get all of that and more with the Patriot flashlight. Light up the darkness with 500 lumens that can be seen miles away. And there's an emergency strobe with four unique lighting modes. Now the Patriot flashlight even comes with an emergency siren. 
And you know what the best part is? It's solar powered. So this bad boy will always have power when you need it most. It really does make the perfect Christmas gift. So get one for your bug out bag, your car, your wife's car, for your home. Just visit PatriotFlashlight.com. I'll leave the link below this video. Use promo code P20 to save 20% off your purchase. That's PatriotFlashlight.com. Enter promo code P20. The link is below this video. From sweet, spicy to fiery, bold, and full of flavor, Brother Doc's is not your typical beef jerky. Never dry and brittle. This jerky comes beautifully packaged with large cuts of meat that are moist, tender, and chewy from beginning to end. Brother Doc's recipes contain the highest quality ingredients that result in innovative flavor masterpieces. Like orange teriyaki, barbecue mesquite, and their signature bold pepper flavors properly named Volcano and Burnout. Moderate pricing and great flavor will have you in beef jerky heaven. Go to svn.buzz slash brother docs to place your order so Doc knows you heard about him here on the Pizza and Tilly Show. It's true what they say about Brother Doc's beef jerky. One bite and you'll be a believer too. It's amazing how people have been raving about iolife all over Facebook. They've been posting their testimonials just because they want to get the word out because it's worked so well for them. If you're not familiar with iolife, it's a 99% pure CBD oil. But the secret is the synergy between the hemp and the ayahuasca vine, the non-psychoactive component of the ayahuasca tea. We recently received an email from a wife whose husband has Parkinson's. For the first time, he's been able to sleep through the entire night. Another customer reported that they're no longer using NSAIDs because their tennis elbow has been relieved with Iolife. The reports have been phenomenal and much more than we ever expected. Everyone should have access to this. That's why if you head on over to Iolife.com right now and use coupon code TFR, we'll give you $5 towards your order. And we'll even ship it worldwide. That's Iolife.com. A-Y-A, life.com. Okay, now I'm with Laura Lomer. Before I bring her back on here, because we have uh, more stuff to talk about, I need to talk to her because it's been a little bit, uh, but she's been around the circuit and she's been through hell, but never, ever giving up. She was voted by our listenership as the top independent media journalist delivering the truth about the world that we live in, fearlessly covering the most important stories last year of our age. And Laura Lomer... Uh, joins me uh, once again back here, Laura. Let's let's pick up uh, where we left off. Is it, um, and we can only speculate. Is it an economics thing? Uh, is it, um, you know, like uh, we we can't handle the truth type of scenario? Like we're 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 we've got the nanny state trying to protect us. They don't want us horrified by the fact that they allowed ISIS to to shoot us in Vegas. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a national security element to this where, like, the FBI, of course, it's just easier for them to, to kind of brush it off and not really tell us the truth about the terror element, just like they have been very dishonest in the past about past terror, terror attacks as well. I mean, this is not a conspiracy theory, right? The FBI, for example, they knew that Omar Mateen's father was an FBI informant prior to Omar Mateen uh, killing 49 people at a gay club in Orlando, Florida, right? Yes. At the time, 
right? Mm-hmm. We didn't we didn't find this out till two years after when this case went to court. The Boston bombing. Look at the Boston bombing. The FBI was made aware of the of the Boston bombers uh, many months before the bombing took place. Uh, San Bernardino, right? The FBI knew of the San Bernardino ISIS terrorists prior to their attack as well. And so I think that the FBI uh, just does a pretty bad job of keeping the public up to date about safety issues. I think that they're deceptive, but I think they also have an interest in allowing for these attacks to take place because notice how after ISIS took responsibility, people kind of stopped talking about the gun control element, but then they said that bump stocks were used. And now here we are over a year later and president Trump just banned bump stocks. And so people attribute the bump stock ban to the Las Vegas shooting, but would Americans really support a bump stock ban if they knew that it was actually ISIS terrorists who were responsible for the Las Vegas shooting as opposed to somebody just using a bump stock. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's about the narrative. I do, because but- if you recall, when ISIS claimed responsibility, the media kind of stopped talking about Vegas. They just dropped the story. But look at Parkland, right? Parkland, you had 17 people died. Three times as many people died in Las Vegas, yet Vegas received not even a quarter of the media attention that Parkland did, mm-hmm. right? So yes. it's it's just deception. And I think also that there's a lot of people in Vegas who, um, you know, very wealthy people who have interest in not allowing this type of information to get out because there's so much entertainment that takes place in Vegas. So if people know that they're not going to be safe going to Vegas to attend concerts or events uh, and that people are shooting out of out of hotels and, you know, committing terrorist attacks and, and slaughtering uh, tons of people, injuring uh, hundreds more, people are not really going to want to go to Vegas. They're going to be kind of creeped out and they're not going to want to uh, spend their time at these uh, facilities uh, whether it be for music festivals or sporting events. And so there's there's probably elements of both, right? Economic and security issues. Yeah, now I will say this, and this is just based on, and I've seen uh, incidents time and time again, and we also heard from Rahm Emanuel when he said, you never want to let a good crisis go to waste, is that these gun-grabbing Marxists, okay, although these terror events are real, people are dying, people are getting shot. They use these events in order to change the narrative so that they can advance their gun-grabbing agenda. So here we have an ISIS event, and they say, wow, let's just use this this exactly. white guy as, you know, this shooting and say he used a bomb stock, so therefore we need to disarm the entire American public like they did with Parkland. They want to disarm all the law-abiding right. citizens to stop school shootings, but it's capitalizing on very real events, okay? So I, I believe exactly. that, that- And that's exactly what they did after Orlando. Orlando, too, had nothing to do with guns. But then the Democrats, they ignored the fact that this guy was a Muslim terrorist who pledged allegiance to ISIS on the phone with the 911 operator. His father was an FBI informant, right? This is the level of deception that we're dealing with. And it's it's incredible to me. I tell this story as I use this as an example all the time. And it's incredible how many people are just completely shocked when I tell them this because they had no idea. Why? Because the mainstream media doesn't report on these things, right? If they if they only knew how much the government is withholding from us, the fact that they were aware of and actually working with this terrorist father prior to him murdering 49 people, despite the fact that his father has associations with the Taliban, well, then maybe people in the narrative in this country would shift to, you know, we have an Islam problem. We have a Muslim problem, not a gun problem, right? 
But yeah. it's much easier to just brainwash people into thinking, oh, well, this has nothing to do with Islam. This has nothing to do with national security. Let's just take away people's guns. Yeah. Right? We, so that's why you had a bunch of gay people in the aftermath of the Orlando shooting calling for uh, gun restrictions instead of, you know, restrictions on Islamic immigration. Uh, oh, oh, by the way, I need to pre-qualify what you said because I knew what you said when you said we have a problem with Islam. That that actually requires further discussion. I don't want to get shut down in the Internet because they're going to take us out of context. Because as John Guandolo has said, it's it's called global Islamic terrorism dressed up as a religion. They use this religion to protect global Islamic terrorism. That's what we're referring to when we said we, when when she said that we have a problem with uh, Islam, and the, and if you look at it, right. Sharia law is uh, is is part of you know part of advancing that level of uh, of agenda. But you know, let let's segue to the next thing. There was a a woman that was recently voted into office. This was very controversial because you called her out, and you called her out factually. She was an advocate of Sharia law and female mutilation, and they just voted her into Congress. But tell us about. Uh, that was, was she in Minnesota? Is that correct? Uh, please pardon me. Uh, yeah, and she's going to be sworn in tomorrow. Tomorrow is when the new members get sworn into Congress. And you have two jihadi candidates, two Muslim women who support Sharia, advocate for Sharia, support female genital mutilation, support giving insurance payouts to family members of terrorists, refuse to condemn Hamas, believe in the eradication of Israel. These women are going to be sworn in and they're going to be congresswomen tomorrow. I mean, this is just how scary our country is right now. And of course, I got banned from Twitter. I had 265,000 followers. I'm, I'm a Jewish conservative journalist. And I got banned because I pointed out the fact that Ilhan Omar is anti-Jewish and pro-Sharia and supports female genital mutilation, which is completely barbaric. But meanwhile, this lady is being celebrated and You'll probably see articles about her in the news today because, um, you know, everybody wants to celebrate the fact that this Muslim lady gets to wear her hijab when she's sworn into Congress tomorrow because they traditionally always had a ban on headgear in Congress. But, you know, oh, wait, we always have to make special exceptions and rules for the Muslims because Muslims have been deemed the most special and protected class individuals in the world. And we always have to bend over back. You know, they never have to assimilate. They never have to respect our laws. They never have to follow our rules and our policies. But we must always give in to them. You know what? God forbid we offend the Muslims. God forbid, you know, God forbid we offend people who worship worship a barbaric, murderous pedophile. You know, God forbid. God forbid. And you know what? And I'm not going to let them take you out of context. I'm going to ask you a question just to further clarify what we're talking about, because I already know you're your philosophy. You're a very compassionate person. You know what they're doing. They're actually Trojan horsing a political movement, a, a global Islamic terrorism, and they're dressing it up in a religion so that we can't talk about it. Do you agree that that this global is these global Islamic terrorists are dressing up in hijabs to advance their agenda of Sharia law, of advancing uh, global uh, Islamic terrorism? And female mutilation and all that stuff, but they dress it up in a religion so that you can't talk about it. Do you agree with that statement? 
Yeah, that's exactly what they do. And, you know, John Guandolo, of course, he, he teaches us and explains this well. You know, Muslims themselves don't even consider Islam to be a religion. They view it as a political ideology, a way of life, right? Mm-hmm. And so by calling it a religion, that's how they're able to kind of use these Trojan horse tactics. And it's not even Trojan horse anymore. It's like no longer creeping Sharia. It's you know, it's it's here, it's in your face, and it's advancing at a very rapid pace, and that's what they're doing. And they're trying to accuse people of religious discrimination if if you oppose it, right? So if you say, you know, that you're opposed to young girls having their clitorises mutilated, or, or that you're opposed uh, to Sharia, well, they're just going to call you an Islamophobe, and you'll be branded as a bigot. And they've been able to establish themselves by through infiltration into our our government um, institutions, our educational institutions, our media institutions, our law enforcement institutions. I mean, hell, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, right? They're one block away from the White House, right? So they yeah. have they have lobbyists. They have their whole full-blown PR machine working to make sure that they're able to implement their Sharia, right? Implement an Islamic caliphate because that's their end goal. That's yes. what they want. They want uh, they want to dominate Western civilization and make us all submit under the guise of, of diversity and, and inclusivity and uh, coexistence. Yes. But as we all know, they don't want to coexist with us, right? Now, see, if I took your interview, and when we're talking about this, and I put it side by side with the information that uh, John Guandolo brings uh, our listenership at the, at the same time, we recognize that not even law enforcement, not even politicians, they're not even properly trained and aware of how uh, these these this political movement known as global Islamic terrorists slash Islam is infiltrating our society. They're not even properly trained on it. They don't know what the threat is, do they? No, I, and in some places like Minnesota, they're allowing for, for imams and members of care uh, which is a designated Islamic terrorist organization to participate in these in these uh, you know law enforcement meetings, and so they're trying to get guidance from them. So in places like Minnesota, where you have this total invasion by the Somali population due to the fact that the Democrats have imported uh, you know hundreds of thousands of of of, of individuals from a terror hotbed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They now have village leaders. So if you go to certain areas in in Minnesota, there's a place called Little Mogadishu. They've actually spotted uh, village leaders, right? Somali men, Muslim men dressed up in little orange vests that say Sharia police, and they go around citing people who violate Sharia law. And because police officers now... Uh, you know, have been accused of, of, of Islamophobia and racism and discrimination. Uh, there are actual police officers who have come to me as sources in Minnesota who have told me that they've been given orders to stand down and not arrest members of the Somali community so that they don't stir up uh, cultural um, issues with the village leaders, right? Yes. Because when officers respond to crimes, committed by Muslims in a lot of these heavily Somali populated areas in in places like Minnesota, they get swarmed by Muslim men. So then it becomes a threat to their own safety and their own security, right? So they also now, they want to have their own little no-go zones. So 
you know, they say that we're not allowed to have a wall to protect our southern border. But in Minnesota right now, what they're trying to do is the Somali community wants uh, the taxpayers to pay $800,000 so that they can build a little fence around little Mogadishu uh, to create essentially a little Somali no-go zone. And they say it's to protect the community from the Somali gangs, but really it's because the Somalis who are living there, they want to have their own little Sharia no-go zone where where non-Muslims are not allowed. And this is the kind of stuff that's taking place. They just elected in Hennepin County in, in Minnesota a gay sheriff who is anti-ICE and pro-immigration. So how are you going to have a sheriff in Hennepin County, where they've identified multiple ISIS terrorists, a place where the Mall of America is located, where ISIS terrorists recently went into a store and stabbed several people, right? Who doesn't believe in ICE? Who's who's going to have the responsibility now? Who is going to uphold law and order and weed out these terrorists, many of whom are Somalis living in Minnesota who have been imported by the Democrats, you know? Are we just going to allow for, for our cities and our our streets to become war zones? Because it sounds like it, right? You, you, you just can't have, eventually it becomes insanity. When you're more concerned about offending people and their feelings, right? And, and you're more concerned about, about upholding their culture and their political way of life, because that's really what it is. It's not religion. It's a political way of life. Well, you know, we, we don't have a country anymore. We don't have a state anymore. Laura, we don't have a constitution anymore. Laura, just, just think. First of all, there's a lot of money behind uh, keeping people like you and, and you and I uh, silenced and, and taking away the ability for us to have this conversation because we're concerned about terrorism. We're concerned about Sharia law. We're concerned about abuses towards women. We're concerned about all these things. They say that we can't have this conversation because... And they use the the, the uh, you know the political correctness uh, part of it because they say that it's quote unquote hate speech uh, because we're broad stroking and saying that all Muslims are that way. I say it this way: I love right. you if you're a peace loving Muslim. If you denounce Sharia law, female mutilation, abuses against women, and global Islamic terrorism, I welcome you. Come on in. I love you. But until right. you do, but there's no such thing as a peace-loving Muslim. <laughs> but that's the thing. Yes. There is no such thing as peace-loving Muslim. And from talking to John Guandolo, you will know this. Yes. Because to be a Muslim is to embrace Sharia. And if you denounce Sharia, you're an apostate. And in Islam, right, the punishment for apostasy is death. So there is no such thing as a peace-loving Muslim. Because if you, if you believe in revising the ways and the life and the commands of the Prophet Muhammad, right, who commanded Muslims to kill the infidels, to kill the Jews, the Yahud, right, and the Christians, then you are not a Muslim. You are not viewed as a legitimate Muslim. So there is no such thing as a peace-loving Muslim. And that is what people need to understand, right? That is the harsh reality. And the media, they're not going to tell you this because they're going to be too scared of getting fired and losing their job. But they've already banned me. They've already sabotaged me. They've already taken away my platform. At this point in time, I don't have anything else to lose, right? So I'm telling you the truth. There is no such thing as a peace-loving Muslim. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying to you. And people need to wake up. They need to wake up. We do need to wake up. And, and now let's uh, let's segue uh, for uh, for the final moments that we have here together. And thank you so much for taking this, this much time out.
everyone needs to recognize yeah. this because they need to stop looking at, let's say, when pizza, I'm on my 13th channel, okay, uh, because we've been shut down. Because we talk about topics like this fearlessly. They shut us down. Don't look at us when we get shut down. Don't look at Laura Loomer when she gets shut down. You need to look at the millions of people that are relying upon Laura Loomer's truth and information that they're trying to cut away. They're trying to cut people off from the truth you're providing to them as a professional independent media, the true free press. They're trying to cut you off, not Laura Loomer, correct? Isn't that what's what's ultimately happening? When you get deleted from Twitter, you're cut off, uh, you're cutting off 200, you had 250,000 followers on Twitter, millions of people being reached right. through those followers, correct? Yeah, well, they're banning they're banning me the truth because they don't want me uh, exposing this stuff. Because look, I mean, I exposed how Linda Sarsour, for example, who's a jihadi, has ties to all of this. She's a, an advocate for Sharia, and I exposed her, and I, I basically forced Alyssa Milano and others to finally disavow Sarsour. And now the Women's March is crumbling. And I don't really think it's a coincidence that right as that happened, several weeks after, I get banned from Twitter. And people just can't handle the truth. And that's why I never get credit for my work, even though I'm always right about these things, is because people are too scared. We live in a we live in a gutless society now, where members of the press are yeah. too scared about, you know, oh, I want to get a promotion or I don't want people to think I'm a racist or I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings or this is going to look really bad or the left is going to write a bad article about me. And so they don't have the courage or the balls to say these things. But yeah. this is the truth, right? This yeah. is the truth. And people need to hear the truth. And it's really disgusting that these tech companies whose investors and biggest shareholders are Saudis and Wahhabists you know, jihadis who believe in implementing, um, you know, uh, a global Islamic caliphate are now in control of what we are able to say. Because when they ban me and they ban others for posting facts about this stuff, they are essentially upholding Islamic blasphemy laws. That's Sharia law. And we are now living in a society where here in America, our First Amendment uh, is now being challenged directly by Sharia law, and it's only going to get worse. And I just hope and pray that Trump wins in 2020 because of the Democrats uh, defeat, end up defeating Trump in 2020, and they end up putting more of these jihadis who have this weird love affair with these Marxists in office. It's going to be doomsday for this country. And that's not an exaggeration. Oh, yeah. Look at places like Michigan. Look at places like look at places like Minnesota. Right? There is no going back. There's no, there's no going back uh, in places like Michigan and, and Minnesota. You know, uh, let me uh, let me also shift back to one one thing that came to mind because I was very very disturbed by somebody who I thought was a truth teller and a truth seeker. His name is uh, Joe Rogan. I mean, I hate to you know to say I don't want to say anything disparaging. But you know what? I was very disappointed uh, in him not not stepping up. He's got a powerful voice in independent media. And what did he say about you when you when you handcuffed yourself uh, to to bring uh, bring awareness to uh, to your issues? What do you have to say about what he said in opposition to you handcuffing yourself to the Twitter headquarters? Well, Joe Rogan, of course, was talking about how. You know, he thought it he thought it was kind of crazy, I guess. And he had Anthony Cumia on and they were talking about how I was crazy for handcuffing myself 
but meanwhile, you know, they claim to be against censorship and they love people like Gavin McGinnis. They were praising Gavin McGinnis on the program. Well, Gavin McGinnis is a supporter of mine. He said that he supported what I did. And what I don't understand is why is it that, you know, they, they say that people who they admire, mostly men who approve of my work, those people are, are fabulous. But me as a woman, right, as somebody who does something very daring and very risky, like handcuffing myself to Twitter, I'm crazy for it, right? So I don't want to sound like an SJW, but there's an underlying element of sexism here. And I I was really disappointed because I thought that Joe Rogan, of all people, would have enough common sense to be like, well, you know, she's right. She's right. Her tweet isn't a violation and Farrakhan's is, so what's going on here? But instead, he decided to kind of, you know, insinuate with Kumia that I'm crazy. But who knows? Maybe he'll have me on the program sometime to discuss it with him because I think it's a really important issue and he has a really big platform. And I would love to talk to Joe Rogan sometimes, sometime about social media censorship and the influence of Sharia in Silicon Valley because it's something that more people need to become aware of. You know what? I'm, I'm not saying this just to, in, to instigate, okay? I, I, uh, I've always liked Joe Rogan, and I'm going to tell you, that was a moment right there because I've heard him talk disparagingly towards Alex Jones. That's a separate fight. That's not, I don't have a dog in that fight. Let those guys battle it out. That's like, uh, you know, Godzilla versus King Kong, okay? Uh, but when, when he said something negative about what you did while propping up Gavin McGinnis, I'm going to have to say, that is an appearance of sexism. And, I, and I'm going to say that you deserve to have your voice be heard as to why you handcuffed yourself. Because when your Twitter account, that was your, exactly. primary, that's your primary outlet for communicating with, your, with your, uh, yeah. your listeners, your fans, correct? Exactly. And even, yes, it is. And even Gavin McGinnis had me on the program before he got canned by CRTV mm-hmm. for being a truth teller. And even Gavin McGinnis admitted that it's sexism. He even said that it's sexism. It's just blatant sexism because yes. there's no reason why you would love Gavin McGinnis's tactics, who is also provocative, right? He's also provocative. Why yes. you would say that he's amazing while calling me crazy. It's just sexism. And even Gavin McGinnis admitted that, you know, I'm correct in, in saying that. I, I'm, I'm going to say so, too. Uh, now, this year, 2019, here's how we're going to conclude uh, this segment. Laura, you know, we'll pick up the phone and call you and get you on when a, when a story breaks. It's important you have an open. Uh, our listeners love you. I'm going to tell you that right now. You are the 2018 uh, independent media journalist for all of our listeners. You have an outlet. Uh, you can come on anytime you want. But this year, 2019, who's going to get loomered? Can you t- give us a preview as to what kind of project you have in the works right now, what we need to be on the lookout for, and where can we find you? Well, you can subscribe to my website, lauralumer.us, and then that's where you can also support my work, too. I'm still on PayPal, paypal.me slash lauralumer, and uh, you can also send me an email, laura at lauralumer.us, and uh, you know, you can support my work in other ways as well. But I'm going to be investigating big tech, of course. I think that all of these big tech leaders, oh, yes. people like Jeff Dorsey, Mike Zuckerberg, they deserve to be confronted. So, you know, I'm just going after a lot of people this year who are censoring and shadow banning and shutting down conservative voices. Uh, the Hamas caucus in Congress, right? These jihadis, it's completely unacceptable. Yes. And I don't, I think it's disgusting. Every single time I see a positive article about them, I just get nauseous because the media media is trying to mainstream Jew hatred and Sharia law. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to let it happen, right? So despite the fact that I'm banned, I'm still going to keep doing what I'm doing. And you can subscribe to my my website. You can follow me on Instagram. 
at okay. Lumard. Uh, you know, I'm still on YouTube. You can find me on Gab. You can find me on that new app, Parlor. Right? Okay, I'm not this, going away anytime soon. You're not, and this is what I'm going to do right now. As a matter of fact, Deb, uh, I'm making a note here. If we can just make sure we follow up on this right away, especially because of how she's been shut down everywhere on our uh, Pete's Antilly Show website, on our emilitia.com website, on uh, uh, on MeWe. MeWe is a new social media platform. Uh, Mark uh, Weinstein, actually, mm -hmm. we're going to bring him on the show. I'm talking to him about how he's a patriot. He's behind uh, MeWe. MeWe is a good platform. We're going to share all of your information. I'm going to ask you one question. I'm going to not put you on the spot. I've just sent you some, some uh, I guess, uh, tried to inspire you to go after the following person. His name is Fatula Gulam. Will you do me a huge favor? Because uh, what the heck is uh, that chick over at MSNBC? Uh, what is I, I'm having a mind block right now because I try to shut her out of my mind. I can't stand Rachel her. Maddow. Rachel, Rachel Maddow. <laughs> I intentionally did that. Rachel Maddow was propping up and giving kudos to the kind little old man named Fatula Gulan in the Poconos that's been supporting uh, funding global Islamic terrorism through the charter schools. Have you started to dig into that to see how how that needs to be called out? Can you go after Rachel Maddow? Yeah, I mean, look, a lot, everybody can be confronted. Everybody can be loomered. <laughs> Nobody is off limits from being loomered. And I'm telling you, that. coming coming this year, it's gonna be it's gonna be more more intense than ever before because you know we we are now in a form of of spiritual warfare in this country. It is oh, no yes. longer a battle between right and left. It is right versus wrong, and we have to fight for our survival. And these people literally want to yep. kill us. And so Laura. it's time to take the gloves off. It's time to fight. And it's time to, you know, be more assertive and, and more aggressive than ever before. Yes. Perfect timing. Great way to end. We are there for you every day. Everything that comes about, we're going to help support Thank your you. efforts, provide all of your links. We'll help get you some financial support as well. Ladies and gentlemen, Laura Loomer, that's all we got time for. We'll see you at 9 o'clock tonight. Thank you so much, Laura. Wow. This is the Truth Frequency Radio Network. T-F-R. Truth Frequency Radio. It's amazing how people have been raving about IA Life all over Facebook. They've been posting their testimonials just because they want to get the word out because it's worked so well for them. If you're not familiar with IA Life, it's a 99% pure CBD oil. But the secret is the synergy between the hemp and the ayahuasca vine, the non-psychoactive component of the ayahuasca tea. We recently received an email from a wife whose husband has Parkinson's. For the first time, he's been able to sleep through the entire night. Another customer reported that they're no longer using NSAIDs because their tennis elbow has been relieved with IA Life. The reports have been phenomenal and much more than we ever expected. Everyone should have access to this. That's why if you head on over to ialife.com right now and use coupon code TFR, we'll give you $5 towards your order. And we'll even ship it worldwide. That's ialife.com. A-Y-A, life.com. You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And
He says, I hear you have a problem with the president. I said, I got a big problem with the president. We want you to meet him at the tarmac. I said, I wouldn't meet this president at the tarmac if he's the last president on earth. You didn't say that. How about cocaine? How about heroin? You're legalizing that? Absolutely. All of it. So legalize all of it. All of it. And, and if they want to kill themselves, let them kill themselves. So legalize coke, legalize heroin, legalize prostitution, but cut thumbs off if somebody does graffiti. She coke. used to say, Oscar's clients never hurt anybody. They just killed each other. I mean, you read a story about the Tony putting a guy's head in a I vice, won the case. The eyes I won out. the case. I, so, I, I, so did it happen? Did it? You know the saying, look, you can get away with murder if you have enough money and the right attorney backing you up. How much truth is there behind that statement? Well, so today we're sitting with somebody. I've been looking forward to this meeting. We've been going back and forth. Finally, we could get the schedules to work together. Uh, Oscar Goodman, to introduce him properly, is a three-time mayor of Vegas. Then his wife follows up and becomes the mayor. Been, you and your wife been mayors for, what, 19, 20 years now? Vegas Almost 20 years, right? Never been done before. Never done before in the United States. He has been known as a mob attorney. Mob? There's no such thing as a mob. Come on, Patrick. That's, you said this was going to be a legitimate interview. I told you that. But I, after all the fights and battles, I said, you, you got to open up. you got to talk to us today. So mob. I appreciate you. Well, you want me to rat out the mob? And maybe we're going to get to a little bit of that. I don't know. Some of the questions here we got is going to be tricky. But by the way, if you're a mob movie guy and you like mob movies if you've seen the movie casino you would have seen oscar goodman in the movie casino and all i could tell all your viewers one thing if they would watch the movie i make 13 cents every time it's on tv 13 cents, 13 cents. it's a wonderful thing but that movie's played a lot of times so you made a lot of 13 cents a lot of 13 right? cents. So still getting residuals could you imagine what the nero gets so you were the nero's attorney in the movie i was the nero's attorney in the movie and pesci's attorney in the movie and sharon stone's attorney in the movie and in real life represented all the people they depicted. Tony Spilacho was a Pesci character. De Niro played Frank Rosenthal, and Sharon Stone was Jerry Rosenthal. And I know you told me a story last time that Sharon Stone came to your house. She's right a now. lovely, lovely yes. woman. Not the persona that you see, the tough lady. She's like, uh, she's like the girl next door. She's a beautiful lady. She is physically. She's beautiful. You're telling me she's beautiful um, also as, as a individual. As I always say, yeah, as beautiful on the inside as the outside. I have some cool questions I want to go through with you. Obviously, for you to go from where you were at, moving here. So why do you leave Philadelphia to come to Vegas, though? I mean, you, you know, know um, Philadelphia. Like at the time, different. you left '64. It's not like there wasn't any action in Philadelphia. A different kind of action. Kind of? Uh, they were uh, the cops uh, there were using billy clubs, knocking people over <laughs> the head today instead of shooting them. So that, that's the difference in the action. I want to know who you were in high school. What do you mean? Were you the cool what? guy? Were you the athlete? Oh, were you the, oh, a were you the instigator? Athlete. Were you the 4.0 GPA? Correct. Were you? I was like a a 2.1. No, I usually was the dumbest guy in my class, although I went to the best schools. I went to a wonderful high school where you had to take a test to get into. It was one of the two finest high schools in the United States at the time. Okay. Uh, it was the only high school in the country that had a president instead of a principal. And then my folks moved, and I went to a private school out on the main line, uh, the Haverford School, and then went to Haverford College, which was ranked number one in U.S. News and World Report as the number one liberal arts college in the United States. And uh, basically, I was the dumbest kid in my class, but I loved, I loved college. It was like being at the Elysian Fields. It was bucolic. I uh, studied philosophy. I studied sociology. But okay. uh, then I blossomed. I was like the ugly duckling that became the beautiful swan and uh, played a little football there, played a little baseball there, played a little everything. I was the only undefeated wrestler in Haverford's history. Uh, my roommate was a real wrestler, and uh, they were wrestling, uh, I think, Lafayette College, and uh, the Lafayette heavyweight was out. So they took me along, said Goodman's going to uh, 
uh, be the heavyweight tonight. No one was there to oppose me, so they declared me the winner, which was very, very good. Champions. I went to law school, University of Pennsylvania, a fine law school, Ivy League. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, compared to my experience at Haverford, which was just so interesting to me, in those days when I went to law school, I was with people, I'm still friendly with them, who wanted to be corporate lawyers, wanted to be business lawyers, and I wanted to be a civil libertarian. I wanted to represent people, uh, the little guy, against uh, big government. So uh, I was unhappy and um, got married to my wife, barely made it through my first year of law school. It was a miracle that I made it through and became even unhappier, not only with the curriculum, but the fact that she was supporting me. And that bugged me. I mean, I couldn't stand the fact that my wife was... Why? Why? Because uh, I looked... I guess I'm chauvinistic. I thought that the man was supposed to support the woman. At least in those days, uh, that's what I figured was the right thing to do. So I decided to get a job. And I walked from 34th and Chestnut, where the law school was in Philadelphia, down to Broad, which is the equivalent of 14th and Market, one block off of Chestnut. Went into the DA's office there, knocked Mm -hmm. on the door, didn't know a soul. And uh, the DA himself came out, Jim Crumlish. And I said, Mr. Crumlish, I said, I need a job. I'd like to be a clerk uh, for your office. He said, well, I don't make those decisions, but you may want to see our inspector, who became United States senator and a very important person in America's history. He uh, interviewed me. He had just come off the first victory of a prosecutor against a Teamster official. And he was riding a, a crest. He was very, very popular and he said, I can always use a research guy. You, do you want to work? I said, I really, I really want the job. He said, I'll pay you a dollar an hour, but you have to work a 40 hour a week. Well, I was the only guy in my law school class who worked at all because everybody's studying. They want to be law mm-hmm. review, order mm-hmm. of the coif. I, I said, I'm so happy. Thank you for the privilege of being able to work. And I worked my tail off and he was a stern taskmaster. Uh, very critical of anything that I did, but uh, constructively criticized me. And a wealthy widow was murdered in Philadelphia. And the fellows who murdered her took $300,000 from under her mattress, came out to Las Vegas to launder it in the old-fashioned way at the crap tables out What here. year is this? I'd say 63, 1963. Got it. Arlen assigned me to work up the testimony of the police officers who arrested these two fellows while they were in Las Vegas. They got released on a writ of habeas corpus and then went to Omaha. They were rearrested there, brought back to Philadelphia for trial in the murder case. And they raised a Fourth Amendment search and seizure issue as far as the search that took place in Las Vegas. And the, the two policemen who engaged in the search activity here and arrested them here, they came back and Arlen said, interview these fellows in anticipation of a motion to suppress. So it was one of these cold, dreary, rotten Eastern nights that the wind was just going through this uh, old stone city hall building. And um, we worked for four or five hours. And then uh, they said, let's uh, let's go out to dinner. We had dinner. And to dinner, they said, you're a nice kid. What are you doing here? You ever asked me that question before? Philadelphians in those days were the most provincial people in the world. I said, where else is there? They said, Las Vegas. I said, you got to be kidding. People live there? It's a great community. So I went home that night and I woke Carolyn up, my wife, my dear, beautiful bride. I woke her up and I said, sweetheart, how would you like to go to the land of milk and honey? She said, I love you, but I'm not going to Israel. (laughs) So so that was the end of that one. And then uh, we decided we would come out here because they promised uh, the new frontier. They said you could do whatever you want in Las Vegas if you have half a brain and uh, you're willing to work. And they were absolutely right. We didn't know a soul came across the country, arrived at the top of the mountain, looking over the valley here. There were a couple twinkling lights in the desert. And my wife said, where have you brought me? 
I said, don't worry, this is great. She says, my parents were right. I shouldn't have married you. We settled in. We had lived in a tiny little apartment in Philadelphia. And she said, I want you to have the nicest apartment that you can get a two-story apartment. Which here. Here. A uh, two-story apartment that had a little patio out front. It, I mean, compared to what we had in Philadelphia, which was like a postage stamp, this was like a palace. But one next-door neighbor worked for the Dell Webb Corporation. Very nice. Another one was the head of food and beverage at another hotel. And across the street was a prostitute uh, who walked a little poodle every morning. And I got my binoculars out. And she was a beautiful prostitute. And she became my client, too. The prostitute. Absolutely. Not the poodle. <laughs> What was the case that she became? Oh, what? What? what, 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 what little what, soliciting. Is that what, bad? What was it? A little soliciting. A little soliciting. I mean, everyone has to make a living. And by the way, you're for uh, legalizing. I'm for legalized uh, prostitution. Sure, I certainly am. I don't even think it's close. First of all, the girls would be safe. Uh, the customers would be safe. There's never been a case of sexually transmitted disease emanating from one of the brothels here in Nevada. Uh, the girls have to go to the doctor. Uh, no one's forcing them to work. They make an, a decent living. They eat well. Um, I, I visited these brothels in preparation of cases on occasion and uh, never heard a complaint from them. I much prefer to see somebody working in an atmosphere like that rather than going into some back alley uh, and, uh, and engaging in some uh, $20 trick. So you believe in anything that can be taxed turning legal? I believe, just in, I, I believe in anything uh, where uh, consenting adults uh, who aren't hurting one another uh, can do. I don't even get into the economic aspect yet. I'm just saying, how about cocaine? How about heroin? You're legalizing that? Absolutely. All of it. So legalize all of it. All and of it. And, and if they want to kill themselves, let them kill themselves. But how do you say that? And then you turn around and you say, if you do graffiti in the city of Vegas, would you cut your thumb off? Because it was my beautiful uh, uh, stone tortoise that some punk kid uh, 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 graffitied. So uh, I wanted to teach people a lesson. And I suggested that we go on TV, not just cut the thumb off. That wouldn't do any good. It just hurt him. I wanted everyone to see the thumb being cut off. And you were serious about this. Oh, I'm dead serious about so it. How, but how, and I like stockades, too. They could take these graffiti people. I haven't seen a Picasso out there, by the way, who's messing up the walls, okay? But, but, but so legalize coke, legalize heroin, legalize prostitution, but cut thumbs off if somebody does graffiti? Absolutely. Where is, where is you, how are you processing Because that? they're hurting somebody when they graffiti a building. That person has to spend a lot of money or the city has to spend a lot of money to make it clean again. Or else you have just a outrageous blight taking place all over the place. And uh, uh, with these other things, you're just hurting yourself. It's like uh, I have four children, uh, none of whom uh, drink and drive. Now, uh, that wasn't an a priori decision on their part. They learned that drinking and driving is bad. You're going to get in a lot of trouble. And the same thing, you teach them that uh, taking Coke is bad. Taking opioids is bad uh, unless you need them in order to uh, appease uh, uh, pain. Uh, uh, but if they want to hurt themselves, they're not hurting anybody else. Let them hurt themselves. They're people. I mean, they're cutting a thumb off. You're pretty hardcore. I mean, you're no, I'm not. I went to biblical not. time. That's like the There's Middle East. Well, I'm not taking eyes out. But uh, if the kid did it again, and uh, we caught him, by the you way. You spent a little too much on with mobs. No, 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 no. We caught the kid who had graffiti. cut his thumb off. Or, uh, let's put it this way. I went to the judge and I said, as part of his sentence, I want this kid to come up to my office in City Hall and apologize to the city of Las Vegas. And when he came up, he brought his father with him and I had a machete on my desk. Come oh. on. I had a machete on my desk and I promise you this, after he got through stuttering, I can assure you he's never going to graffiti anything again.
So the key is machete, not cutting the thumbs off is what you're saying. No, I'm saying that uh, he thought I meant business. How old was the kid? Probably about 17. You, you probably mess with this kid's mind for the rest of his I life. He's going to remember you. I hope he I has did. nightmares about a mayor from Vegas that every would, night. That won't stop him from going to a prostitute, though, okay? But it will stop him from graffiti. Maybe he is now a customer to that prostitute walking the poodle. Maybe there's a connection there. No, she's older than Methuselah. <laughs> she's a female so, Methuselah. So, so go go back to your in, your apartment, two bedrooms. So right. you're finding who is your neighbors, and then you have eighty seven dollars. Rent is eighty seven dollars. How are you getting your first customer? How did you get your first client to get well, your career going? Before we go there, I said to Carolyn, I said you have to get a job, sweetheart. And she got a great job in advertising and publicity over at the Riviera Hotel. And uh, really was very, very good at it. So we had a little bit of money coming in. I made a little bit of money uh, in the uh, DA's office. Uh, after I took the bar, I went to work for the public defender's office. I learned an awful lot there, too. My first six cases as a public defender, I won them. Either when I say I won them, I, I have to define that. Um, I got them dismissed. Uh, got, I worked out a deal that the client could not refuse. Uh, so uh, they were very successful. Uh, of course, I was court-appointed for all... Uh, intents and purposes the clients were not paying me because i was a public defender not one of these clients thanked me i guess i don't know why they didn't thank me but and you remember that out of the six none of them thanked you not one thanked me and the first case i got as a private lawyer on a referral from somebody uh -huh. i lost it and they thanked me for trying so hard it always taught me that there's nothing wrong with charging a client and also i learned where there's a fee there's a remedy so i'm not one of these lawyers who had people come into his office and say, oh, I can't do it, or it's not going to be good. If I took their money, they knew I would work as hard as any human being could work to make sure that it had an appropriate result. So how did this uh, so-called community called, uh, that some people call mobsters, now obviously you know. Well, the, they were mobsters in those how days. Did, how did you find them, though? How did you all well, of a sudden no, get no, into I, that? You know, a lot of people, uh, uh, wise guys, uh, I call them authors who uh, write stories that Oscar Goodman was sent out by the mob to represent their interests in Las Vegas. Well, the mob would not send me out with $87 in my pocket. I mean, if I was coming out, I'd be coming out in the chauffeured limo and uh, with a little bit of money in my pocket. Uh, it happened all by accident. My dad, who I told you before, I love more than life itself, he thought of a great present, a great uh, gift when we came out here. First of all, he wasn't happy we were coming to Las Vegas. Uh, it took him years uh, to accept the fact they were going to Las Vegas because well, he, why was that? What because was he had that, the, the impression that many people in the public had at that time that it was Sin City and it wasn't a place where people should live. Or oh, even then, the reputation oh, of Vegas was... Uh, oh, absolutely. More so then. They had a book called The Greenfelt Jungle and everybody read it. They gave my father 100 copies of it. He read it. He was going crazy. <laughs> His son was going to Las Vegas. And when people said, where's Oscar? He said he moved to Phoenix. <laughs> he couldn't even say that his son moved to Las Vegas. But... Um, he sent us a gift. He sent us $20 a month, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was all the money in the world, with the proviso that it had to be used for entertainment purposes. It couldn't be used for rent, couldn't be used to pay taxes. It had to be used to take Carolyn out to dinner, wow. to see a movie, something ah, along that line. Interesting. There was a hotel where the Mandalay now is. It was called the Hacienda. And Carolyn, she was the first counter, believe it or not. She didn't know she was a card counter, but um, her parents played a game called concentration, where you take 52 cards and you turn them uh, face down. Mm -hmm. So all you saw was the cover of the card and you picked up one at a time and you had to match them with each other. And when you matched them, you took them off, whoever had the mm -hmm. most at mm -hmm. the end of the day. Well, that's the way her mind worked. So we would have a nice little dinner 
and usually had about five or ten dollars left over and she would sit down to the blackjack table and invariably she would play the five or ten dollars and win and whenever she won she put it in her purse and when we lost she lost five or ten dollars i was smart enough in those days to know that you had to be thought of as a sucker by the dealers and by the floor men and by the pit bosses if you're playing because no one's going to beat them so i would stand behind her and it was a different vegas in those days maybe a much friendlier vegas and i would talk to the dealer the same dealer all the time followed by the name of bob butler He's a, a very pleasant guy, very pleasant. And we became friends over the card deck. One day he calls me up. He said, I'd like you to do a little legal work for me. And I uh, did a nice little legal work for $250. I still remember, including the cost. He was happy. I was happy. a good amount back then. That's it's not sure. a good amount. It was $250. But it, I mean, your rent is 80, 87 bucks. So it's kind of like $4,000 today. Well, see, only a guy like you who's that smart could figure that out. And you're absolutely right. We carried on the friendship after that. A phone call came into the Hacienda Pit. Who's the best criminal lawyer in Las Vegas? Nothing's changed over the years. Guy picks up the phone. He cups it. Who's the best criminal lawyer in Las Vegas? The guy did the $250 case for said, call Oscar. And that's the way it all started. Wow. Simple as that. It, tur it turned out that the fellow who called me was uh, Bob Martin. Bob Martin was the odds maker for the world. Canada? Uh, no, uh, that was uh, Mel Horowitz. Uh, okay. uh, uh, Mel's brother was the one who was in trouble. He called Bob, who's the best criminal lawyer. And uh, they, uh, I get a phone call at home. Come on over to search and search your address. I said, excuse me? Uh, we have a case for you. So I say to Carolyn, because I'm not brave, she's brave. I said, sweetheart, take a ride with me. <laughs> I was scared to go. So we went Literally, over. Literally, you were scared. I was go. scared to death. I, when you hear a voice like that, I wasn't used to hearing a voice like that come right over. And I went up to the door, and a guy hands me an envelope. He says, here's your retainer, three dimes, and you better win the case. I didn't know what he was talking about, three dimes. What is three dimes? Mm. So I said, all right. And he says, we'll get a phone call tomorrow. I said, fine. I go to the car. I said, sweetheart, go around the corner. Let me look what's in this envelope. I saw $3,100 bills. Never saw so much money at one time in my entire life. And I said, I better win this case. Well, it's the kind of case you can't win. It was called a dire act where uh, this fellow who retained me's brother was caught in a stolen car, apparently in Arizona, here in Nevada. And all the government had to prove was the car was stolen and it was stolen and taken across state lines. And whoever's behind the wheel, 999 times out of a thousand would be convicted. Well, I got real lucky. I tried the case on St. Valentine's Day. I think the jury must have felt sorry for me, and it's, I, I thought it was a fun story, where um, we make our closing arguments, the jury's instructed, my law office was about a block and a half from the courthouse, the judge says, uh, be on call, I said, yes, your honor, and walked back to my office, and on the way back, the, the mobster brother, the guy who was taking care of the fellow I represented, he was a mobster, um, but a nice mobster, uh, bookmaking type offenses. It didn't bother anybody. Burner. He was a moneymaker. He didn't, he, yeah, he didn't hurt anybody. He says, is it better if the jury takes a long time to come to its verdict or a short time? I said, oh, here I am. I'm like a big shot. My first federal case. I said, oh, it's not even close. The longer they take, the better we are. I walk into my office, the phone's ringing. Jury has a verdict. Oh, I said, I told you, the faster, the better. <laughs> and we went back there. They found him not guilty. Well, that's the way it all started because Mr. Horowitz was a friend of Meyer Lansky. Mm. And Meyer Lansky uh, was the national mob syndicate's financial genius. He was he and Lucky Luciano were the, the, the people. Most people know Lucky, but Meyer, Meyer is a, he's a 
He's a heavy guy. I mean, he's the, the heaviest. Yeah. I mean, in the world of uh, that world. Yeah. Uh, he was the biggest. And he got indicted out here. He got indicted for skim, which is taking money before taxes are being paid on it, taking it out of the system. And he was living down in Miami at the time. Lawyer Dave Rosen uh, was a friend of mine, having met each other in a case where we defended the first wiretap case in the United States down the, in Florida. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have my client severed and the case was ultimately dismissed against him. So I developed a little bit of a reputation through no fault of my own. I was a very, very lucky fellow. And uh, when Lansky gets indicted, Rosen, his, uh, his real lawyer, calls me and said, will you represent him on a local basis? So I did. And uh, there were some very prominent defendants in the case. The two fellows who owned the Fontainebleau in Miami were defendants of the case. And they were represented by world-class lawyers, Edward Bennett Williams from Washington, D.C., Bill Hundley, who was Robert Kennedy's right-hand man. I'm filing motions to dismiss based on Lansky's poor health. And the government's saying, there's nothing wrong with Lansky. We have pictures of him walking his little poodle down, I wonder what this is, my next door neighbor's poodle. Walking the same poodle, walking a poodle down 21st and Collins, showed pictures of Lansky and I'm saying, I have letters from the doctor saying he's too sick to go to trial, he's too ill. And finally, the others go to trial, they're all found guilty. Uh, Lansky does not go to trial and the judge dismisses his case. So from that point on, I am the lawyer in the country for certain kind of people. You no longer have to look for clients. Everybody's looking for you. I, I have more clients than any lawyer in the United States. What happened from there? Oh, just one case after another. I became an expert in wiretap cases and represented a lot of people whose last name ended in vowels across the United States. I had cases in Miami, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, New Jersey, South Carolina, Macon, Georgia, of all places, tried four cases in Macon. Uh, Omaha, Nebraska represented a fellow by the name of Maxie the Little Giant Abramson. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Arizona, all over the place. And uh, it was the nascency uh, of uh, wiretapping. And I was able to pick apart the government's procedures and uh, was winning one case after another based on irregularities under the wiretap statute. Ultimately, I won so many cases, I taught them how to do it right. So I killed my own practice in effect as far as wiretaps were concerned. But in doing that, I represented all these people who were supposed uh, reputed mobsters around the country. And uh, whenever they got in trouble, when their children got in trouble, their relatives got in trouble, I got the phone call. Now, did you become friends with these mobsters or wise guys you call How them? How do you or define friends? So, for instance, like, was it... What are you doing Friday night? Let's go to no. dinner. We're not talking business. Hey, what are you doing? No, this? No, no, Let's no, go no. to watch it in the Yankees game. Was, all, all business except when i was lucky enough to win a case we went out to dinner and we celebrated but after you won a case after I won there a case. was nothing that didn't have to no no because my wife taught me a lesson early on she said don't become your client i said what do you mean she says uh, if you are like your clients and not that they're bad people they were very charming they were very nice very respectful but uh, the judges looked at them differently and she was saying, if the judges look at you as they do your clients, you will not have any credibility with it. So the clients understood that. And uh, we did not have social relationships. We had friendly relationships, but not social. Why don't you share the story on what happened when the well, OJ's attorney contacted you in 1994? Well, no, it wasn't an attorney. It was interesting. I One of his associates? Yeah, I had a problem. A judge had ordered me to turn over financial transactions, the records of financial transactions with one of my clients. And I knew what the law was in the Ninth Circuit, that um, a financial transaction is not covered by the attorney-client privilege. It's only the communication uh, between the attorney and the client. I knew that, but I felt that was a bad law. 
So um, I refused to turn it over. And the government uh, uh, brought a motion to hold me in contempt of court. And it was a serious business because they wanted me to be jailed forthwith. I said, what does forthwith mean? They said, right away. Judge said, well, we'll give him a chance to appeal it. And he said, but uh, if you lose the appeal, bring your toothbrush. I was under that cloud. I had a case in Boston. I went up there, my wife joined me, and we're in the hotel room, nice hotel, and the TV's on. And what's this? A white suburban going up and down the highways in Los Angeles? What's the story here? And they were saying that O.J. Simpson was being followed and chased as it related to a murder that took place in the Westwood area. And uh, just as we're watching it on TV, I get a phone call from a fellow by the name of West who represents himself as uh, an agent of O.J. Simpson's, and they want me to come out to Los Angeles immediately to represent him, and they were going to send me a $25,000 retainer. So I said, I can't. They said, what do you mean you can't? I said, I can't. Uh, I have my own problems, and I'm not going to take on somebody else's problems until I resolve my own. So uh, I had found out that the first lawyer who got the phone call was Howard Weitzman, mm another excellent lawyer who uh, represented DeLorean uh, on the uh, cocaine case and won it. And then uh, after uh, I passed, I understand that Robert Shapiro got the phone call. He brought in F. Lee Bailey and then Johnny Cochran. So he had a great team. Uh, I would have loved to have had that case, but you know, you have to do what's right by people. And I just didn't have the time based on my own problems to take on somebody else's. You, if you would have taken it, you think the results would have been the same? I think that the case was decided the moment the case was moved from Westwood to downtown Los Angeles. Mm. I think that the folks who lived in downtown Los Angeles uh, looked at O.J. Simpson as a deity, and he could do no wrong. He was a hero of the community, had gone to school down there, a great football player, a uh, popular public figure running mm. through the airport, uh, jumping over suitcases and everything in a single bound, and they weren't about to hurt him. And... Uh, uh, I don't know whether anyone could have lost the case. Shapiro asked him, they said, do you think he did the crime? He says, let me put it to you this way. I haven't even told my wife what I think about this. That was his answer. Yes. He says, I've never even brought it up. Well, he doesn't know. really talk to his wife. They're not that friends. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He has a lovely wife, too. She knows that. Uh, yeah, so I understand what you're so, saying. So let me ask you another question. This is, this is a part of that world because... When, when I got out of the military, you know, I didn't want to go to college. But if I was going to go to college to become anything, I was going to become an attorney. You would have been okay. a great lawyer. That would be a direction I would want to go yes. to. But, you know, the saying that's, look, it, it, you can get away with murder if you have enough money and the right attorney backing you up. How much truth is there behind that statement? Well, uh, you know, uh, we, we're a capitalistic society. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way that we reward excellence is by paying somebody. And uh, excellent attorneys uh, make a, a very good living. They, they charge a substantial amount of money uh, for their uh, representatives as services. So I think you're probably, if you have a lot of money, you're going to get a better lawyer than somebody who doesn't have as much money. Uh, but on the other hand, I've seen some great public defenders uh, who uh, make a meager salary in the scheme of things, uh, put it, their life into a case and do... Uh, as good a job as uh, the most expensive lawyer in the world. So I think as a rule of thumb, you're probably right. Money buys an awful lot. It buys investigators. It buys the ability to have exhibits. It, it buys time Yeah. in the sense that uh, 
when you're getting paid, uh, you could take as much time as a client could afford you to take mm -hmm. to properly prepare. Whereas these poor public defenders, they're overburdened and they have to move cases in and out. Uh, but uh, I, I think that generally is a, a good rule of thumb. From your standpoint, you're in that world. I'm in the financial world. What would I like to change about the financial world? You know, in the basketball, I don't like the ticky-tack foul. And, you know, I wish they'd get away from ties in NFL. Why should we have a tie? They should play until somebody wins. You know, all these things that people think that would change. Obviously, in America, you know how many people we have in, in prison. You know, we are number one. It's way too many. Right. And then some people don't get the fair trial because they didn't have the money. They didn't have the support. If there was one or two or three things that you don't like about our current system in place, what would those things be? Well, the first one would be um, if you have uh, an FBI agent or a cop that the average person on the street is supposed to respect, get on the witness stand and take an oath. I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And then perjures, perjures themselves, tells a lie. They should be penalized substantially for that, and it never happens. They don't even get a slap on the wrist. They don't even get a letter of reprimand in their file. They go on and lie in the next case. That's the one thing I would do. I would change that immediately. How do you change that, Bill? You make sure that the, the judges direct the, the prosecutor where the lie is taking place in that district to uh, take the case before a grand jury and to see whether the grand jury wants to indict that person for perjury. Is there somebody you're insinuating? Or are you talking like a Comey? Or are you talking to anybody talk, specific no, or anybody I'm talking, in general? I'm talking about just about every case I was involved in where, where the prosecutor or the FBI agent or the local cop lied and nothing ever happened to them. Yeah. And that's outrageous. Okay, so you would change the level of accountability for them. What else would you change about it? The system as far as a bail is concerned, I think that um, they should use more house arrests. Uh, they shouldn't keep somebody... Uh, incarcerated who's presumed to be innocent just because he's unable to post a monetary figure in order to get out. Uh, that's something that is pretty easily worked out, but it takes uh, it takes some time to do it. It takes some commitment to do it. I think there has to be reform along that line. Are you saying here's the 20 crimes uh, one can make, uh, the bottom 40%, we can take 3 million people out and have them be how I'm just throwing a number out there, yeah. you know, we can take 300,000 people out right. and they can be house ready and put something on their right. ankle and no. we can track where they're, yeah, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, electronic monitor that if they uh, abscond, uh, then uh, uh, the, the alarm will go off. How do they make money to pay for food? How, they, are they able to work? What happens uh, with those there, folks? There are arrangements where they're allowed to, uh, during the daytime, go and get to their job and then return. Uh, they, uh, and they, if they can't, would the government pay for their food allowance or no? If, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not asking for a welfare state here. I'm not okay, suggesting, that's what I'm curious. No, I'm not okay. suggesting that at all. all I'm right. just suggesting that somebody shouldn't be penalized because of their financial position. What are your thoughts about what to do to minimize some of the time for these guys? That Well, uh, certainly uh, uh, one thing that I feel is um, very, very bad, and it's interesting because it applies at the very, very top of the rung and very, very bottom of the rung, and that's when a prosecutor makes a decision who he's going to give a pass to in order to have that person testify against somebody else. We see it happening with uh, uh, Cohen, uh, the fixer, the lawyer for uh, Trump, who uh, Trump said is my best friend, my lawyer, my loyal, wonderful, great until he flips. And, and now he's a rat. And I think uh, I, if I have to predict, I think the same thing's going to happen with Manafort, uh, where he's going to... Uh, uh, look, n nobody gets a deal like Manafort uh, unless he's ready to give a fellow like Mueller uh, the, the candy store. 
Uh, the, you don't let a guy walk away from eight counts uh, where he's found guilty, facing another trial where he's looking at basically doing a life sentence at his age and say the most you're ever going to get is 10 years if you work with us. Now, what does working with us mean? It means that uh, you uh, are going to fully cooperate. And I've been in rooms uh, uh, seeing how they asked them to cooperate. If they don't like what the person's saying, they say, oh, no, no, that's not cooperation. You know more than that until they finally say what the prosecutor feels the prosecutor wants to hear. And then they, uh, then the person has kept the deal. Let them walk away from murderers. I'm going to give a speech here in about uh, a, a week. Uh, well, no, later on this week, I'm speaking to a group here at the plaza. And I'm going to go through one case after another where they allowed guys who killed four people, who killed eight people, who killed 16 people, who maimed, who, uh, who had prison riots where they welded different parts of the guard's body mm -hmm. together. They let them walk. And you want to know where they walk? They go into the witness protection program and they become your next door neighbor. And nobody tells you what these people did. You could be living next to the most evil killer in the so world and won't know the difference that you don't make deals like that with the devil that's spawns perjury that's spawns lies you shouldn't be able to make you know who's saying that now mm. president trump all of a sudden it dawns on him that's this isn't fair these guys are going to become rats so they could testify against me that's not fair that's not the way it should work so you're hearing it from the very top now so how do you think trump is doing how do i think, think, he's doing? I think uh, the country is doing very well financially I don't know whether uh, it's attributed to him or whether it's a carry over to the prior administration or administrations. I think he's very, very clever uh, that he appeals to his base uh, with the tweets and the Twitters, whatever those things are called. But I also think that somewhere down the line, if he ever has a proceeding, they're going to be able to use those as statements against his personal interest. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's making a heck of a record against himself if he's not telling the truth. I think he has a, a bad habit, unfortunately, of I'm not going to say lying because lying is a very technical word, but saying one thing one day and then saying the exact opposite the next day. And now that he has uh, Giuliani as his uh, straw man out there, uh, he's compounding the situation. Uh, so I think uh, from a, a legal point of view, he's not doing so hot. I think Mueller is playing everything very close to the vest. I think he's doing what a prosecutor is supposed to do, that he's not trying his case in the media. But Trump can't help himself. He uh, he uh, tries his case, and he appeals to people who will never find him uh, guilty of anything because they love him. But on the other hand, uh, I'm not sure he's helping himself. You also had a fallen out with Obama back in this is like financial crisis time right now. And I know about 10 years ago he made a comment about Vegas. Said hey, sure did made it. Made two comments. Made two comments. Yeah, yes. and you were upset about that. So upset. You, I mean, it was. I was outraged. It was. It was national news. So I was outraged. What happened? What happened there? All right. Why were you outraged? Here, I'm sitting. I'm sitting uh, as the chairman of the convention authority, conducting a meeting, and somebody comes up to me. They said, "Did you hear what the president said?" I said, "What are you talking about?" He said that people should not fly their private planes to the Super Bowl and shouldn't go out to Las Vegas and gamble their money. I said, nah, the president wouldn't say something like that. That's like saying, uh, don't uh, uh, don't eat uh, oranges in Florida or, or don't buy cars in Detroit. Same thing. I said, nah, he couldn't have said that. So at the end of the meeting, I said, did anybody hear that some high-ranking official said something about Las Vegas? Nobody raised their hand. Then afterwards, some reporter comes up to me and said it was president, and he said that. I said, he owes us an apology. Well, you know, if people took a front at that, how can this mayor say that the president owes a city an apology. I said, I said it, but I'll back off if you don't like the word apology. He better straighten the situation out and say Vegas is a heck of a place to come to for meetings and conventions. 
There's no better place. And then yeah, when you're through doing your business, you have a good time. He says that, I'm cool. I write him a letter. And I said, uh, I expect you to say that. I think it's only right because the next day, Patrick, the day after he made that statement, 312 meetings and conventions canceled. Come on. I don't lie. Okay. 312, 312 meetings and conventions canceled the next day coming to Las Vegas. A major convention paid $600,000 to get out of their contractual obligation and went to San Francisco. Now, I'm not, I love San Francisco. You know, they have a nice bridge. You can't see it because of the fog, but it's a nice bridge. But the prices there are way higher than here. 3X is good. I mean, uh, as far as a convention location, we have 155,000 rooms, no places further than 15 minutes away from the airport. It's a perfect spot, but they paid to get out of it and they went up there. So I don't hear anything and I'm boiling, I'm steaming. He makes another statement to a high school group. Same thing. People should not spend their money in Las Vegas at the expense of uh, paying their children's college tuition. Now, what's wrong with that, though? You know, to his defense. Well, who has to hear from this guy about Las Vegas? He's a president. The economy is bad. He's telling you to save money instead no, of No, he, uh, but he, he's, he's, he's pointing to at Las defense. Vegas. To his defense. Oh, I'm not going to defend him. Uh, the guy, uh, he, uh, he hurt our town. And I'm the mayor, and I'm protecting our town. That, it's that simple, okay? I don't care whether he's right or wrong. He hurt my town. How long did you feel it? Until the following took place. Every Memorial Day, I visit the chapels all over town when I was a mayor. And I pay my respects to the fallen and to those who served. It was a beautiful day. Mm. Gorgeous. Got through about 1130. And I have a little koi pond in my backyard. And I love going to my backyard, watching my koi and turning my classical music on and reading a little book. And the phone rings. I run into the house. Oh, and I also had started on my second martini at 11.30. I run into the house. Hello, uh, is the mayor there? I said, this is the mayor. He said, this is uh, Congressman Rahm Emanuel, the president's chief of staff at the time. But he called himself Congressman. I said, what can I do for you, sir? He says, I hear you have a problem with the president. I said, I got a big problem with the president. He says, well, we'd like to work it out because he's coming out. We want you to meet him at the tarmac. I said, I wouldn't meet this president at the tarmac if he's the last president on earth. You didn't say that. I told you I don't lie. I you sure did. You wouldn't meet him I if wouldn't he meet was him. the last president on earth. Right. He hurt my city. So he says, I think we could probably rectify the situation. I said, I asked for that a long time ago. I said, what do you suggest? I suggest when he comes out, he tells the people that Vegas is a great place to do business. And a great place to have fun. He'll do that for you. I said, he does that for me. I'll meet him at the uh, the tarmac. So he comes, you know, the way he walks. Comes bouncing off the plane. And, oh, you're the wise guy mayor, he says. That's the first remark to me. I said, I don't think I'm a wise guy. He said, well, they say you have a lot of fancy suits. I'm not sure that makes you into a wise guy. Maybe a mob guy, but not a wise guy. He says, I hear you're angry at me. I said, I'm boiling. He says, well, I'm... I think I'll straighten it out. I said, no, you better not think you're straightening it out. You better straighten it out because I'm out here meeting you based on the premise that you're straightening it out. He didn't straighten it out. He didn't straighten it out. So I had it with him. And I said to my wife when she became the mayor, I said, you're going to meet this guy at the airport? She says, I'm not you. He's the president of the United States. He's coming to my town. It's only right that I meet the president of the United States. I said, you do what you have to do. I do what I have to do. So we don't agree on that one point.
Did that cause you to go from being a Democrat to an independent? Or it did. So that was the reason no, why you- No, no, that wasn't the reason. What else was the reason? Oh, because I felt that as the mayor, I shouldn't be looking at people as R's or D's. I'm the mayor for everybody because of uh, the way my popularity went. Everybody uh, was in favor, not everybody, I mean only 84% uh, were in favor of me being the mayor. <coughs> so uh, I, I changed for that reason. Uh, but I did change uh, from uh, independent or nonpartisan to uh, Democrat. When I got angry at Trump one day, I ran down there and changed my registration. <laughs> now I'm going to change it again back to uh, nonpartisan. Yeah, so that part's interesting because, you know, as a mayor, you're more with the people on a daily basis. So I can see how you're saying I can't really be on a political side because I have to deal with people on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, you know, uh, I often thought when I was sitting up there presiding over the city council meetings in particular, <laughs> the, the constituents um, were very close to me, as close as you are almost. I'm sitting up there and they're coming to me with their grievances, they're seeking redress. And I, I thought back and I said, you know, this is exactly what the framers of the constitution were talking about when they said, we the people. And they did not want their uh, leaders to be monarchs. They wanted them to be representatives. Mm. And uh, I loved it. Uh, everyone said when I ran for office, I would hate the city council meetings. It was my favorite time, but it really made me feel like I was down with the people uh, when I was presiding over these meetings. I, I really enjoyed it. And I had my- uh, I like that line, you were down with the people. Well, that's true because I'm sitting up here Yeah. and the people are down there speaking to me up here. But I had my coffees with the mayor. I did that uh, once a month. I had my martinis with the mayor, which I did every night. That's but cool. uh, officially, uh, uh, we did it once a month. And it gave people an opportunity to come to a local bar and have a drink with me or go to a local Starbucks or uh, uh, tea and leaf, whatever they call those places, and uh, have a cup of coffee on me. And um, I wanted to hear what they had to say. That's what a mayor's there for. And I think that's probably why you went from 67 to 87 to, you know, whatever. I think I went to 87, right, 80, uh, 65 to 87 to 82. To 84, 84, yeah. I mean, listen, anything above 65 is respect. Anything above 55, you're doing really good. I don't know, they said it, when I won by six, uh, 65, 35, the first time they said it was a landslide, I felt as though I had almost Well, that's a landslide. Well, I don't think so, but that's yeah, your- right. But that's your competitive side. So let me ask you, if I come in, is, is it fair to say that if I walk into your living room, I'm not gonna say a massive, painting of Barack Obama and Trump in your living room? Is that a pretty fair assessment? I think that's uh, very fair. However, when you come to Oscars, uh, where we're sitting today, my little restaurant there, I have a picture of Mr. Trump when he was Mr. Trump, and I have a picture of President Obama. And that's the picture, by the way, with o President Obama, of him coming off the plane. You can see I am not happy. When I first was elected mayor, we acquired 61 acres downtown, which we now call Symphony mm -hmm. Park. And that's what I saw as a future uh, for Las Vegas with great academic medicine, with uh, wonderful performing arts. He came out, he wanted to build uh, the buildings. Yeah. And he built a beautiful building uh, and he builds beautiful buildings. And the one thing I wasn't able to accomplish as the mayor was to bring professional sports here. I made the inroads by talking to Commissioner Bettman with the NHL and David Stern with the NBA and then Adam Silver. But my wife is the one, she, she uh, capped the deal. So we have the Raiders coming here. We've got the- You got some hate for that. You got some hate for not getting uh, the teams to move out here. You started it, but you, you got some criticism. From I don't some, care about criticism. What, who's criticizing me? It's important to know that anybody that does anything, you know, at the highest level, you're going to get that criticism well, as well. There are always a couple of yeah. people who are, uh, I call them misanthropes. They get up in the morning <laughs> and they hate. I mean, they hate when they get out of bed. All I could do with these misanthropes, I pray to God. I pray to God that a misanthrope is living with another misanthrope and they hate each other. And from the moment they wake up,
said to go to Atlantic City, Trump did whatever he could for him to not get the, That's get, what they you know, say. the lies. That's what they say. Yeah. And then when Trump wanted to come over here, when worked it. So how much to truth protect. is there behind that? And, I, know, I don't know. It's just the same thing as, uh, well, uh, you ask me whether somebody's guilty, whether I said in my life, you know, the guy's really good. Un unless you're in the, uh, the fray. You really can't say what's really happening. All I know is this: as a mayor, you were you you wouldn't know like you wouldn't hear stories to say like you hear it, but it's hearsay. It, 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 I don't know whether the rumors I mean, it, it, it happened. Neither one of them has a license. I understand say. that, but uh, it's like uh, everything else. I, uh, I'm too busy to worry about other people's business. If I uh, was a mediator and had to put people together and get the job done, I'm there. Yeah, but if you get Trump that he has a license, you wouldn't he keep building here and like it brings more economy here. Uh, we're, doing, mayor, we're, doing pretty, no, we're doing pretty good. Uh, uh, Las Vegas is back. Uh, we He's not going to come build casinos now as a president. He's not going to come and put, you know, President Trump casino come and play. Yeah, well, don't, don't bet on that either. <laughs> that could happen because who knows what's going to happen with the, 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 the next term. So here's a technical question for you. Now, this is just a historic question. I'm curious to know what you're going to say about it. Say the folks from East Coast don't say and encourage this guy, good looking guy who was a charmer, suave, had a temper, but he had these blue eyes, a guy named Bugsy, say they don't ask him to come to Vegas, say he doesn't buy Flamingo, say he doesn't see Hoover Dam, say none of that stuff takes place. What's Vegas today? Well, without, without that, yeah. well, I'll tell you what it was back in 1905 when uh, that's the official time that when we say Las Vegas was created, right where we are sitting today, right on the ground down there, they had an auction and uh, we, we peg our history from the day of that auction. This was a watering hole. The cattle that was being transported uh, from Salt Lake City to Los Angeles and vice versa, they would stop here. Hmm. Uh, the cows would get off, they would water because there were these riparian uh, springs. and. Uh, that's why we were founded. Uh, they built the dam. Uh, people came here. They built the uh, Air Force Base, the Army Air Force Base in those days, now called Nellis. And nothing really was happening as far as the economy was concerned. And then we were the first place to legalize gambling. And uh, there were a couple small places, but Siegel's the first one to come here and to build the, the megastructure out at the Flamingo. He had some places of interest in the downtown joints, but it was a flamingo, and uh, that went bust as far as uh, the mob was concerned. Uh, they were very unhappy with Siegel, and he was uh, uh, shortly thereafter, he was uh, slain uh, at Virginia Hill, his girlfriend's home in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what would be without somebody else would have done it? Uh, once we had. Oh, uh, somebody else would have done oh, it. Oh, I believe that, yes. Oh, so, you, see, Bugsy, you don't think irrelevant Vegas is still going to end up being Vegas. Yeah, right, but it went through uh, iterations in order to get where it was. When Bugsy was here, uh, he was working under the aegis of Lansky, uh, and then uh, the other uh, fellows came in. Uh, basically, there were a lot of Jewish fellows who were the front people for the, uh, the the Italian guys who really owned hidden ownership of the hotels here. And uh, it was a great town in those days because each one of these hotels was owned by uh, one group. Uh, they weren't subject to the New York Stock Exchange, exchange and the filing of forms, and mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have the careful supervision over the the gaming, so to speak. It was wide open. It was a bargain. People came here. When my wife came here with myself in 1964, we were able to go into a place called the Thur Thunderbird. It's not here. We used to implode our history. When I became the mayor, I stopped the implosion. So you got to renovate and do it over again. But uh, uh, we went to the Thunderbird. We saw Frankie Lane. Nobody remembers him, but he was a great singer. Sarah Vaughn, who was a great singer, didn't charge us. We went in there. They gave us free drinks, free food. They were happy to have us. I don't know why. 
uh, I felt like a big shot. I, I tipped the maitre d' two dollars. Came out. I, I was wondering what it meant when he put his hand out like that. That's that's when uh, you knew he expected to be rewarded. But uh, we had a drink. We enjoyed ourselves. Now you have to pay for parking. So uh, I think we have to watch ourselves here. I know there are a lot of people who are going to be upset that I'm saying that, but uh, we uh, we're uh, a symbol of uh, something here. We're a symbol of freedom. Uh, we're a symbol of people. Uh, who think they're getting something for nothing, uh, people who know they're going to have a good time. And when we impose surcharges on rooms, room taxes, entertainment taxes, uh, parking fees, I think we detract from what we uh, are supposed to be. And we better not kill uh, the golden goose that has laid an egg here uh, that has provided a pretty darn good life for all of us who live here. You think that's similar to what's happened to America, where America becomes so rich, where we say, let's start making welfare state and give everything else for free. It's a bad because mistake. the original people at first, you know, created this, brought the system of capitalism. And now that we're so rich, let's let's get all these free programs no, because I, we can I, afford it. No, I think certain programs have to be free for people who can't afford it, certain health programs. Uh, I think that's very, very important. Uh, I think that we have to address the homeless problem. Just about every city in the United States has a major homeless problem. Uh, we're in a position here in Las Vegas. We set it up where somebody who wants help gets help. Somebody who wants shelter gets shelter. But there's so many folks out there, many of whom are veterans, uh, who come back and uh, uh, they really uh, have uh, uh, suffered uh, uh, mentally and emotionally and they do not want the help that the city is ready to give them. And we have to be able to reach out mm -hmm. and take those people in our bosom and uh, make sure that they're provided for as far as medication and food and they're just uh, uh, the common things that people expect in life. Interesting. But don't give anything away to those who can earn it themselves. That's where I am. Nobody gave, bet you nobody ever gave you anything for nothing. No, not, 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 okay. not this guy. So, and, and what I, amazes me these days, and I'm not complaining because I had jobs that people would laugh at I love them all. I was a janitor at a community center. I cleaned toilets and men's rooms and ladies' rooms. That's why I never use a public restroom because I know the way I used to clean them. I wouldn't go, <laughs> I wouldn't go near them. I, I sold fuller brushes. I sold encyclopedias. Uh, I had every job in the world That's and cool. I loved every single day. Well, your attitude, your attitude. Is well, I loved every single day. Yeah, I'm looking around now yeah. uh, at, at these 15, 16, 17 year old because they never had a job. Yeah. And, and they're complaining, they go away to college. They should go into the army. They should have the mandatory service and get some maturity and learn how to do something before they start spending their parents' money. We're on the same page with that. So so let's go through some of the people you represented, okay? and. and and, and then maybe some that, you know, I don't even mention that you may have some stories to to cover. Obviously, we talk about Meyer Lansky yes. and then Fat Tony Salerno. I know you went through Nicky Scarf of Philly uh, Leonetti, uh, Stardust Casino Boss Frank uh, Lefty Rosenthal, Jimmy Chalmers. Some people I, may I, not I remember Jimmy. I represented everybody. You represented pretty much everybody. But why don't we talk about Tony? Right. So let's talk Tony about Tony Spilatro. Let's talk about Tony Very interesting Spilatro. guy. Okay? Very interesting guy. Because uh, the FBI and the, the local sheriff. Accused him of killing 22 people. He says, well, they, they the say number. 22 now. It used to be 27. All my clients I killed 27 people, according so to So maybe the five are alive now. They I don't know. The, the, the authorities always said, Goodman's clients killed 20. This guy killed 27. I said, not 26. I mean, you read a story about the Tony putting a guy's head in a vice. I won the case. The eyes I won out. the case. I, so, I, so did it happen? Did it? As far as I'm concerned, I won the case. The jury, they found him not guilty. Maybe he got a good attorney. Maybe he was innocent. Maybe, may, maybe he had good money. Maybe he had, because, you know, maybe officers he was pay in. well to attorneys. They paid me well. I'm sure they didn't. You're a good attorney. Well, they, so how does the, how does the uh, populace know if it happened or if it didn't happen? 
And is that okay if we don't? You don't. What, what, uh, what difference does it make? But is it okay if we don't? Sure, it's okay because the only thing that matters is what the jury has to say. Yeah, but you went. All, you also went back when I asked you, I said, what would you change about the laws? You said, I don't like the fact that some of these FBI agents can get on and they can abuse their power. That's but correct. It's up to, uh, but you have to bring that out. I bring that out during the uh, case. And you hope you have some reporter who's not out in the hallway smoking. You also said, you said you'd rather have your daughter date Tony than to date an FBI agent. Yeah, I did. You I still believe that. Tony Spilaccio never lied to me. I never had an FBI agent in any case that I ever tried tell the whole truth under oath on the stand. How do you like that? So that's your reasoning. How do you like that? That's 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 scary. And I didn't let him get away. And it was a very bad winner. You know, you talk about bad losers. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a bad loser. If I lost, I lost. I was a bad winner because I made him suffer. And when uh, the jury came back and said that because of the way I tried my case, the government only had to do two things because I rarely put a client on the witness stand. Do two things. One, they had to follow the Constitution. Not a bad rule. And they shouldn't engage in prosecutorial misconduct by holding up a pair of panties with red paint on it and saying that the woman was raped and the jury's supposed to think it's blood. Okay? United States Supreme Court. They said uh, that's wrong. But before they said it was wrong, it was done all the time. Yeah, you, you said so many good things about Tony. So yeah. this guy was a nice man. Let your wife good. even said Tony was a nice Even I think your mother one time met Tony. Absolutely. You know why? And, they, and, you and know your, why? Mother said, your mother said they didn't even treat me like his mom. They treated me like a, lady. a human being. Like, like a, a lady. lady. And she used to him. say, Oscar's clients never hurt anybody. They just killed each other. Okay? <laughs> and she also said, Oscar's clients took me to the best Italian restaurants. That's not bad. Uh, uh, but when Tony Spilaccio came, you wish you had friends like Tony Spilaccio. When they came into my office, they said hello to my secretaries, good morning. When they asked for a cup of coffee, may I please have it? When they got a cup of coffee, they said thank you for it. You can't ask for more than that. You can't ask for more than that. Uh, I know a lot of big shots, okay? Who don't say good morning to people. That is true. Who don't thank people. You could have those guys. So then it becomes the level of value on what is at the top because if i'm going to take out somebody on my own family or within a community i'm a part of maybe you think that's okay like if i'm going to go against somebody else that's in my community you've chosen to live the life of being a maid man or a capo and you cross us we got to do something about it that's where they live uh, you know i had the case up in uh, massachusetts yeah. uh, representing vinnie ferrara mm -hmm. they called uh, the prosecutor in order to prejudice the public against him at a speech in front of other prosecutors referred to him as the animal vinnie the animal, the animal ferrara. They, well, you said they would never call him that they wouldn't call that to his he'd be scared yes, to call him that. that to his face yes and his sister was a nun they never called her a penguin this guy loved his little doggy. And when the judge had Vinny in front of him and listened to the wiretap uh, that Vinny did not know yeah. he was being recorded on, he said, these people have their own code. Uh, I don't agree with their code, but they follow their own code. And he says, you know, there's something decent about a lot of them. Mm. Uh, when you get to know them, you don't look at what the other side says they are. Well, then let me ask you a question. If they're so decent, uh, uh, would you support the fact to bring more wise men and uh, and, and uh, mobsters back so we can have more, you know, of their culture come back? Is that also what you're saying? Or no, you're I'm not, not saying, saying that. I'm not saying that at so all. So they're, they're decent in the way they treat uh, 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 people who uh, uh, are not part of their culture who have crossed them. So is a Tony good for society? From my perspective, he was a very nice fella. Now, from the uh, authorities uh, perspective he killed 27 people and uh, they said to me how can I represent a guy like Tony Spilaccio who killed 27 people how can you represent a guy when you know he's guilty how can you do that I said wait a second you're the cop how can you not put him in jail if he killed 27 people he's walking around never spent a day in jail so who's wrong me or you
Sorry, I get excited about no, this No, I mean, stuff. look, you, you, you're a professional for what you're doing. And by the way, his life, Tony's life, was played by Joe Pesci as, I think, Nicky Santoro or something like that in Casino. Yeah, I forget, so, I forget the, the name. The hothead, but he had charm and he had well, charisma. Well, you know, it's he interesting. Was, it was, it was, it, he did a heck of a job. Um, when I, I, I played myself in the movie, mm -hmm. and when I went out to the wardrobe set the first day, uh, it was like Deja, like Yogi Berra would say, it's like deja, deja vu all over again. I see this little fella with a crooked arm holding a valise. Jesus, Tony. And Tony was dead, of course. It was Pesci. He looked just like him. He looked just like him. When now, you guys shot the movie, did they ever come over? Like, and I know you said, well, oh, they come to my home. Pesci came over as well. Like you, oh, they all came to my oh, home. They all came to your place. All came to my home. What's that experience? How was oh, that? Oh, I thought it was the greatest. Uh, uh, De Niro is a very quiet fella. Pesci, very noisy fellow with a cigar, stunk up my whole home. Uh, Sharon Stone came over, and it was great. Um, Elaine Wynn was there. She's a multi-billionaire. Uh, Sharon Stone's not doing bad, and Carolyn Goodman's all right. And it was great seeing the three ladies doing the dishes together. That was pretty cool. Uh, uh, Scorsese was there. Pileggi was there. Scorsese was there. Yeah, they were all there, cool. and we had a wonderful time. We really did. It was a, it was a great dinner, and uh, Carolyn made a great meal, and Everybody enjoyed themselves. Let me ask you, is it true that when Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield's ear up, part of his ear up, you represented him against? I did. You did? Yes. And is it, It was the referee of that match also the judge, or was it Was it not the judge? He was. So this, the referee of that match was also the judge in court? Yeah, Mills Lane. But, yeah, but, but not, not uh, no, no. I appeared uh, on behalf of Tyson before the Nevada uh, Athletic Commission. And uh, I was brilliant in the sense that... Um, uh, the, the evidence was pretty clear that the year was off. Okay, no one's going to argue with that. Uh, but uh, everybody was saying, well, um, take a uh, suspension. That's the best you're going to be able to do because they already grabbed the purse, $3 million. So uh, one of the uh, fellows on the commission who was a good friend of mine, and I'm not going to say he wasn't, calls me in the back room. And he said, Oscar... You may not want to do this suspension thing. You may want us to revoke him. I said, well, revoke revocation is much more serious than a suspension. He says, no, after revocation, you can come back and reapply after a year. Whereas on a suspension, you have to do the whole time. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, Tyson brought in so much money to this community. Just being on the billboard saying he's going to fight brought people in from all over the mm -hmm. world to watch him fight. Yeah. It was a real event. I said, uh, looking at this economically, I don't think that they would not. I think they would give him his license back. So he took the revocation and he got his license back the first day that the year went by. And uh, it, was, it was a brilliant move. Not me. I mean, I just followed the lead there. But it's nice to have friends in high places, too. I was hired by Don King. You know, it's funny. Uh, when I was a baby lawyer, um, my first time I represented King was when uh, Roberto Duran, you know, the uh, no mas. hands of stone. Yep. No mas. He was fighting Esteban de Jesus, and uh, the IRS had come in, and they were putting a, a block on the fight uh, over some tax lien. And Don came to me the night of the fight. I was able to get the fight on. And from that point on, just about every year, the first fee I counted on was going to be a Don King referral. Wow. Yeah. Every year I got myself wow. a nice chunk as a result of having done a good job. So you're a fan of Don King? I like Don King. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, so he, he paid his debt. Okay. So a couple names here. I'm just curious to know. You know, one of the things Dean... Shindal said, "This is this is a very, yeah. This is a very interesting story. He's a great okay, so he's a boxer. He's a rodeo guy. He's, uh, he's, he's movie, talented. Movie actor, uh, actor handsome. Yeah, uh, he's a rodeo guy. He uh, used to carry a bag between here and St. Louis, whatever that means, and a tough guy. 
but a nice guy. Well, he gets uh, uh, somebody, in my opinion, set him up. The law went into his, he had a beautiful ranch out here where he used to rope cattle and the local sheriff was his best friend. And my kids used to go out there on the weekend and ride little ponies and three wheelers and the like. So he calls me up one day, he's arrested. What for? Possession of an unregistered silencer. I said, Dean, I said, that's a, that's sort of a, a done deal if they find it in your home, unless you have a, re he said, I'm framed, but I, no one's going to believe the frame. I didn't have the silencer, but no one's going to believe that. So uh, we go into the courtroom and they read the indictment, possession of an unregistered silencer. And we had a visiting judge from Los Angeles federal court. And he says, Mr. Goodman, may I see you in my chambers? Uh, and the prosecutor says, yes, well, we, no. He says, I want to see Mr. Goodman, which is, you know, you're not supposed to go and uh, meet with the judge. They call it ex parte without the other side there. But this judge asked for me to come back. He says, what are you doing? He says, you have a reputation as a good lawyer. Why are you wasting my time? I said, your honor, I got a defense. He says, you have a defense for this? I said, yes. I said, Mr. Shindell is an avid hunter. He loves to hunt ducks, but he's a terrible shot. So he had the silencer in case he missed the first shot and didn't want to scare the ducks away. Judge says, you're kidding. I'm going to give him probation right now. So I went out and I said, Dean, you got probation? He said, I don't want probation. Went back, I said, your honor, he doesn't want probation. <laughs> Judge said, I'm going to dismiss the case right now. Dismiss the case. Done deal. Done deal. Silencer, he goes hunting. Great defense. That's called creative. It's called defense. making up a creative story. Wow. <laughs> wow. And it worked. It was effective. It worked. And by the way, this is what he said about you once. He said, Oscar's a stand-up guy. He wouldn't give you up. You can fry him in an electric chair and he still wouldn't give you up. He's a man's man. I consider myself a tough guy. I'll stand up against any man, but I'm not half the man Oscar is. He's got brain, guts, and heart. And another man called you. He said the Oscar is known for being a strategist. And he said, you, you have your own code you live by and no one can break that code. What is that code? You live by code. I mean, you even told the guy, uh, is it Rick Bacon, the, yes. the FBI guy, you told me, said, I have a code I live by. So what are some of the elements of your own code? Honesty, okay. integrity, your word is your bond, you're loyal and you never cross a line. When I ran for mayor, everybody said, you know, he's a mob's lawyer. One of my opponents had a little, I have bad temper sometimes, and uh, no, I would never see. No, it. one of my opponents had uh, a little uh, a TV ad with little uh, ca cartoons of guys with masks on, carrying little bags of money with the the a dollar sign on it, and hypodermic needles. And my wife said, "You may not watch TV." I said, "What do you mean I, I can't watch TV?" She says, "You may not watch TV until this election is over." I said, "What are you talking about?" She says, "You will have this guy whacked if you ever see this ad." <laughs> Well, they, they were whackable ads, but I had a better ad. I brought uh, prosecutors, FBI agents that had come into contact with who were on the other side. And they all said, you know, we don't like Oscar, uh, but he never crossed the line. Can't do better than that. Why? And so they came to your defense. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. But now, strategy-wise, just, just out of curiosity, you're, you got to be a mentally tough, emotionally tough guy to be in a city like this to deal with the people Well, that let me tell you, with. very interesting. Jack Binion, that's a very important name to our community. His father, Benny Binion. Benny came out with a reputation as being a murderer uh, in Texas and China. made a stake here and opened up the Horseshoe Hotel here. Very, very popular. That's where all the poker events were taking place. And he had a family and one of his sons, Jack Binion, sort of took over the empire. 
Jack is a very quiet guy, a very smart guy, very decent guy. And the two of us were talking one day, we were on the roof of the horseshoe looking over Las Vegas. It was his domain and my mm -hmm. domain. And he said, uh, you know, if you're not strong, this place will eat you alive. And I listened to him. It's very, very true. I'm a degenerate gambler, but I don't gamble more than I could afford. I never would let my family be affected by it. I'm a the, I'm a drunk, uh, but uh, not that it affected my ability to be a halfway decent lawyer and a halfway decent family man. But you have to know what your limitations are. And if you uh, violate those limitations, you're going to get in a lot of trouble, especially in Las Vegas. And that's actually what you said opening uh, when you were running for mayor. At the, you said, I've never been to the city hall. I drink, I gamble, and they loved you for it. It's almost like you pulled off, uh, you're like the M&M of uh, politics. No, you know what it was? And my son, who was in the Marine Corps, the yeah. guy I called, and I said, you know, Ross, uh, they're going to send a straw man in. Um, Police Protective Association doesn't want to see me the mayor. They're going to send somebody in to, to bait you. And they're going to talk about my drinking and my running around and my this and my that. He says, Dad, you have to do a preemptive strike. I said, what are you talking about, Ross? He said, you don't know what a preemptive strike is? I said, no, tell me. He says, you've got to beat them to the punch. So they sent up some guy and he says, when's the last time you've been in City Hall, Mr. Goodman? Turns around, starts walking off. I said, hey, wait a second, buddy. And everybody in the audience says, you don't talk to a potential voter that way. I said, wait a second, buddy. You come back here and you look at me and I'm going to answer your question. He slinked back and looked up. And I said, when you ask me a question, don't walk away. And saying the answer to your question is, I've never been in City Hall. You have anything else you want to ask me? And I looked at the audience and I said, I don't want to hear any more questions that I'm going to answer now without a question. I'm a drunk, okay? Don't call me after five. I'll talk to you. You'll think I'm sober, but I won't remember. So don't call me after five. And as far as gambling is concerned, if I saw a cockroach here and it ran left, I would bet on it going left or right. So don't ask me about that. Anything else? That was the end of the race. That's the campaign. End of the race. Locally here, you know the stories about Sinatra, Dean Martin. Did yeah. you have any run-ins with them? Not run-ins. I, I, um, I was friendly with Sammy Davis Jr. Mm -hmm. I was involved when I was a baby lawyer with some business negotiations on his behalf. I was invited to, uh, oh, this is a horrible thing to say, to a birthday party for Sinatra's mom the night that her plane crashed and she was killed. So that was a disaster. What well, a night. Yeah, terrible, terrible thing. So did you spend time with Sinatra? Like, did you no, he time? never made it. He didn't make it to the party, but we were all there waiting for him to be there. I knew, uh, you know, Jerry Lewis was my next door neighbor around the street. We were good friends, Shecky Green, Don Rickles. I mean, any, anything all my with friends. Mo Green, any, any experience with Mo Green or no? No, but Mo Sedway, yes. Okay. His son got us a, a local doctor here. It's interesting by how the children of these supposed mobsters uh, did very, very well for themselves and became community leaders. That's interesting. Yeah. You said something in 06. You said there was a game that came out that was shooting game. Rainbow, I think it was Rainbow or something Oh, like where that. they uh, cast aspersions on Las Vegas. Yeah. I wanted and, to bar that, too. You wanted to bar that. And I sure how did. did you feel when the shooting happened a couple of years ago in Vegas? Did it make you think about your comments in 06 or not at all? No, no. Um, in 06, I was the mayor. So you think of things one way when you're the mayor. And uh, this year on October the 1st, um, my wife was a mayor and she got the phone call about 20 of 11 and didn't see her for three days after that. She was mm. in the hospital taking care of her best she could, assisting the uh, first responders. So no, no, I didn't think of it that time. I just, uh, I, I felt it was a terrible shame because I felt we're a community that's very safe and this was not a terrorist attack, but uh, could show you what one evil person, I, I, he wasn't crazy, this guy, he was just 
He was evil. Yeah, what one uh, evil guy could do it, it is a disaster. Lightning round. Lightning round, I give you a name, first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Anything that comes to your mind, first thing that comes to your mind. James Comey. Bombay Sapphire. Raiders. Las Vegas. Tequila. People who aren't serious drinkers. People who aren't serious drinkers. Okay, John Gotti. Uh, a victim of uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano. La Cosa Nostra. Uh, I like to call it uh, La Cosa Nostra and think of pastrami. <laughs> okay. Bugsy. Somebody who's nuts. Really? Oh, yeah. Obama. Don't like him. Hillary Clinton. Don't like her. John McCain. I knew John McCain. I had a fight with John McCain, too, but I respected him, and I think he was a great American. Giuliani. No respect. None. Zero. I want to finish on a good note. How That's about a good note. note. Let me give you a good note. Joe Lewis, boxer. He was one of my favorite people, a witness in one of my cases back in New York. There's no way in the world I could help my client until I brought Joe Lewis into the courtroom, and the judge said, Mr. Goodman. I said, yes, Your Honor. Here's a guy who didn't talk to me for the whole trial. Mr. Goodman, come up here. Like I'm his best friend. He says, is that what it, who I think it is? I said, that's Joe Lewis. He says, can you get me his autograph? Come on. I said, I sure can. From that point on, every denial was granted, granted, <laughs> granted. Very cool. Well, Oscar, uh, thank you so much for great, making the time. Great. I know we were trying to set it up to get together. It's good to do it at your restaurant. I love your, uh, your humor, your knowledge, your wit. Your energy, your mental toughness, the whole nine. This was just a fascinating conversation. Let's put it this way. I'm a lucky fella. I'm, uh, I'm involved with uh, the Plaza, a great restaurant here. Uh, people come up here, have a wonderful time. There's a great buzz. And uh, I participate in the buzz. So I'm the happiest guy who ever lived. Oh, the final words, mob story. When Michael Francis, I know we're very good friends yes. with Michael, yourself as well. Right. Mob story, it's uh, going to be a, a noble experiment. It's in the downtown area. It's a artistic piece uh, with uh, Jeff Kutash, who had the Splash Show running for years out at the Riviera. But I understand that the music's great, the dancing's great. Uh, Michael Francesi is in it. They say he's riveting as far as his presentation is concerned. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it. And tonight here, the reason we have to wind up is we're going to have concierges from all yes, over the community. And then we're going to have the media here later on in the week. And uh, everybody's going to love uh, Mob Story. Well, I'm going to go to it tonight. By the way, if, you haven't, uh, if you're ever in Vegas, click on the link below to find out more information about the Mob Story. Uh, and aside from that, any questions, thoughts, comments about today's interview, comment below. If you haven't subscribed, do so as well. Oscar, again, thank you so much for thank your you, time. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate you. You're uh, Not only are you a bright guy, uh, but you got that beautiful twinkle in your eye. It's great. I appreciate that. It's true. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much. <laughs>
So look, before we get right into the interview, there's gonna be a reveal here with my guest Richard Turner in about 10 minutes maybe, which you probably will flip out when you find out what the reveal is. But I wanna say a couple things to you. I watched his documentary last night. It's called Delt. Only two documentaries have brought tears to my eyes and you know I love documentaries. One was Senna and the other one is His Life Story, which is one of the most emotional yet inspirational documentaries I've watched in my life. In the world of magicians and card mechanics, he's not recognized as one of the best, he's recognized as number one. You know you're number one when the best come and ask you for an autograph and picture. That's who we're talking about. Just to announce a couple of the things that he's had recognition wise, he was a 2015 and 2017 close-up magician of the year from the Academy of Magical Arts. He's in the Hall of Fame at the Magic Castle. And on top of that, in 1982, Siegfried and Roy honored him with a Golden Lion Award in magic. So with that being said, again, there's gonna be a surprise or reveal in about five to 10 minutes, but I wanna introduce to you a very special guest, Richard Turner. Richard, thanks for being on with us here on Valuetainment. I am so honored to be with you here today, Patrick. It's very cool. I've been so excited about this interview. So excited about this interview because I am a product of like uh, studying people, mm-hmm. and there are some that you study that you see, wow, this person really took their game to a whole different level. But you've been able to do it in your profession, in your personal life, in parenting, in your health, in so many areas. And I want to get into topics of, you know, uh, divergent, obsession, wow. you know, uh, some of the experiences with your sister, which we'll get into maybe a little bit of Phil Ivey on what happened with him at UK when, you know, the $10 million issue that he had, I think was 7.2 million pounds. You know which one I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Maybe we'll oh, yeah. get into it a little bit of that. But and then some other topics which will happen after the reveal. But prior to doing that, why don't you why don't you kind of do a little bit of your work and show us what you got? Okay. And what I am is a card mechanic. And you mentioned that term and generally the public go, card mechanic? You mean card mechanic? No, card mechanic. <laughs> and and the term goes back like 50 years before the invention of the automobile. And a card mechanic is somebody who can fix a card game. In other words, I can make anybody win or lose under just about any set of circumstances you set before me and on just about any type of card game, which is different than a close-up or a card magician. Magicians learn certain tricks for the purposes of fooling and entertaining, but those tricks will not give them any advantage at the card table. The techniques for the card table are literally thousands of times more difficult to develop. There's thousands of very good card magicians. There's a, a dozen, half dozen top world-class card mechanics, card sharp, card sharp. There's a bunch of slang terms for it. But the bottom line, when you play poker, blackjack, bridge, whatever the game, you mm-hmm. want to make sure the cards are evenly mixed to start right. off with. So you have a deck, yes? I do, yes. Okay, so in the casinos, they give you about 20 seconds to give the deck three shuffles okay. in a series of cuts. So give your deck a few cuts. Oh, cuts or shuffles? Okay, okay, let's go, just go right into it. Okay. Shuffle. Then this is basic casino procedure. Riffle, riffle. And then you have to give what's called a, a running cut. Okay. And give it another riffle and a cut. That's basic casino procedure. Got so it. the deck should be pretty evenly mixed, yep. yes? Yep, yes. Hold your cards in your hand off the table. Okay. Does that look pretty even? Are you kidding me? Do we have ace, two, three, four, five, six? Yes. Did I shuffle them back in the perfect order? Yes, you oh, did. I, what do you know? We did it. Okay, now I'm going to do what's called a casino watch. And I'm doing it face up. And that's for the purposes the camera can see that the cards are being scrambled because magicians will have what are called shaved tapered cards where they're different sizes Mm -hmm. and they can feel stick out and so this will ruin that now i want you to take and give that deck a shuffle okay and just set it right here we're just gonna okay and um 
Uh, oh, okay. Uh, cut the deck in half. Just cut the deck. Cut off half. Cut off half. There cut you off go. half. Yeah. Give me a. So you don't think I had you cut? Give me a random number. Three, four, five, six, seven. 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 One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And what's that card? Ten of spades. Okay. Tens are wild because in poker games they have like deuces are wild. Mm -hmm. Sometimes trays are wild. Baseball have multiple wild cards. So tens are wild. Pan of pass. You shuffle that deck. Pass. Switch with me now. Okay. Shuffle them up. Shuffle it. Now, have you ever played blackjack? I have. 21. Yes, I have. Have you seen the movie MIT, the 21, the MIT students they took on the casino? Uh, anyway. I, I saw was, the interview. Oh. Are you talking about the movie with Kevin Spade? Are you talking yeah, about yeah. the actual interview uh, you did with MIT? I was on a TV show where one of these world-renowned card counters was going to demonstrate how he could beat the house. And what he didn't know is they brought me as the dealer for that segment. <laughs> We filmed for two hours, never won a single hand. He was. So if you're ever a dealer at a home game, at a house game, I shouldn't Good play there. Luck. Okay, we'll burn a card, but I'm going to reverse it. Instead of me taking the money all, all the way around, I'm going to reverse it. How many players should we have at this table? Five. Three, five players. Where do you want to sit? One, two, three, four, or five? I'll sit at four. Number four. One, two. You're at Benny Benyon's place. You're right here. Number mm -hmm. four, player five, player six. Benny Benyon will let you make any a bet for any amount you like okay okay one two three and you chose four now watch this before i take your card i'm this is the burnt card i'll hold it back mix do something with those cards very quickly mix them shuffle them i shuffled one time put them back on the burnt card okay and you're right here number four yeah what's your first card ace of spades what's that card queen of hearts Bingo, you just walked out with a million and a quarter. But you just shuffled, you just cut, you chose five players, you chose to sit at number four, and you messed those cards up right before I took your card, and I took care of business for you. See? That's what a mechanic does. I fixed the card game. I made you... How does Vegas feel about you, by the way? Oh, they love me. I'm a, I'm a legend over there. They're very... Uh, the people that are in charge of catching cheaters are all very good friends of mine. So let me ask you the opposite question. The guys that go and play, mm -hmm. do casinos cheat against the players? No. The safest place to play in the casino in the world now are in the casinos, particularly the, the upright ones, the you know in the in, our, in the states because of gaming rules, their 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 gaming licenses are so valuable that it's not worth risking their license to to try to cheat somebody. Now you go back before the 1980s when the mob was more in control, that wasn't necessarily the case. Now, when the corporations have come in, it's really the safest places to gamble are in the casinos because the security, the INS, interesting. Sky, all the stuff they have is, uh, it keeps it pretty safe. Did mob ever contact you in the 80s saying, hey, Richard, can we strike a deal together, do something? Oh, no? you already want to get off our mob stories now, are you? <laughs> I have so many mob stories. Do you really? I want to get into it. Well, why don't you share a couple of them with us? Okay, well, it started in about 1981. Okay. Uh, in 1982, I was on a show called That's Incredible, so people saw me all over the world. And then the mobs, mob people started thinking, skills, dollar signs. This one guy first approached me, and he, he wanted me to show him what I could do. He was a mechanic, and um, I showed him. He said, I'll give you $1,000 a day to come work for me. This is 1982, so that's $1,000 a day with good money back then. And then I said, no, thanks. He said, 2000 a day. And again, I politely refused, and he said, how much will it cost to buy it? That was his actual, that's wow. exactly what he said. How much will it cost to buy it? And I flashed back to my memories of the movie Godfather, where you know, he, the guy wakes up with a horse's head in his bed. <laughs> he made him a deal he couldn't refuse. And so I, uh, I said, no, thanks. And that guy followed me around for about six years, 
trying to get me to work for him. And then twice, I watched him on the news with he and one of his New York partners hauled off to jail because one of their operations were, were was raided. Another uh, offer came from the Middle East, started off with a phone call, very strongly accented voice, wanted to talk to me about doing business. And I said, meet me aboard the boat. When I was in nightly entertainment, I get aboard the boat. And there was five men of Middle Eastern descent, only one spoke English. The interpreter sat here, the boss, and then the three other guys didn't say anything. And they said, they threw a stack of bills on my table. So let's see what you knew of those cards. So I sat down and started showing how I could win it. Some of the things that you and I were doing. And then he says, we'll give you $10,000 a week. Come to the Middle East and play cards for oil money. Because apparently there was a lot of Texans that played the oil, had mm-hmm. oil involved, involvement with the oil business, obviously. And there was a lot of high state games they were playing. They wanted me to control which direction the money went. And I said, uh, no, thanks. He, go, he was irate with me. He said, what? You're turning down $10,000 a week? I said, yep. We argued, he talked to his boss. His boss was mad at him. He's mad at me. And so they're arguing back and forth. Then he said, how about 20000 a week? And I said, nope. They argued again. Now his boss is getting really mad at him for not securing a deal. He goes, 30000 Finally, he said, how about a million dollars? Now, he didn't say if that was by the week, but I didn't say no. And they were so irritated. They had just received their food. They threw down their forks. They threw down their napkins and threw another stack of bills on my table and left. And when I got uh, when I got the bills, I thought they were all like ones or fives. There was a stack of $100 bills. So I still had a good night. I didn't have to compromise myself. Now, another person, very wealthy, very successful. And we were in his beautiful mountaintop mansion. And I was telling him about this offer I had from the Middle East, this million dollar offer I had from the Middle East. And he told me, don't take it. He said, in a situation like that, you'll be 100% used. He said, you understand what I'm trying to tell you, Richard? And for those that know, 100% used means they kill you when they're done with you. Mm. I told him, I know what it means. He said, you know those Middle East gentlemen? He said, they own half the world. He said, we own the other half. That's what he actually <laughs> said, we own the other half. He said, we can arrange to have these card games take place in the United States and we'll back you here. And you know, I thought to myself at that point, I thought, wow, I'll be 100% used in my own country. I'll die here. That's the deal I was looking for. I want fresh American dirt. I want to be buried in. I don't want any of that foreign dirt. And now, if you want, I can even tell you the scariest offer. But it's uh, it'll take a couple minutes. I, I want to hear it. Tell us. I'm on a flight, headed to a performance, and I hear this paper rattling next to me. All of a sudden, this guy lowers his paper and says, "Hello, Mr. Turner. I want to talk to you about doing a little business together." And I thought, "How did this guy know what flight I was on? How did he know what seat I was sitting in?" Anyway, he, he was oh, a diamond God. broker from Sun City, South Africa, and he wanted to offer me two to three hundred thousand dollars to play cards in these games. There's a large Jewish community. He was, his mother uh, was Jewish, his father was Italian. And he wanted me to play in these games to once again, control the direction of the money. And we had a conversation and it was nice to be flattered. He was flattered to have someone recognize you and talk and mm-hmm. in the plane land. And I thought that was the end of it. That was just the beginning. Uh, I'm in a hotel. I just finished, we did a lot of media, just finished some television appearances and then my show and now I'm in my hotel and the phone rings. And so the phone, he goes, Richard, it's me, Diamond. I'm downstairs, let me buy you dinner. I I nicknamed him Mr. Diamond because he was a diamond dealer. So I I called our chauffeur, his name was Ira, and he uh, took me, he said, take me down to the restaurant's, uh, uh, hotel's restaurant, go down there. And he said, said, Richard, have a seat. He didn't offer to stand or shake my hand. Mm. He just have a seat and then 
I real left. He held his hand up in front of my face and said, I know your aversion to, well, you know, shaking hands. And I thought, how did he know I didn't like to shake hands? It wasn't because I was weird or quirky. It's because the moisture or sweat from other people's hands affects my touch with the cards. So, you know, if someone was sweaty or whatever, that would that would diminish my touch. So that's, wow. that was the reason. And so I thought, how did he know that? Oh, not even a half a dozen people know that. So then he said, hold out your hand. And he handed me a five-carat diamond pinky ring. Back then, the gamblers wore these big old pinky rings. And Mr. The first guy I mentioned, he had a big old giant one, the biggest of marble. He says, we're $70,000. Is it's a gift, a token of my good faith. And I knew if I accepted that ring, I would be owned by him. And I gave it back, said, thanks, but I'm not all that hot on jewelry. And um, so then I'm on the road again. I'm in another hotel. I walk in uh, another place, another city, walk into this uh, bar, sitting at the bar again is Diamond. He goes, Richard, let me buy you a drink. I thought, how did he know I was going to be here? I didn't know I was going to be walking in here. So we sat, talked. We sat at the what, the little, uh, what those little uh, two-man uh, booze. Mm-hmm. He's across, and he, he goes, now, you're in the martial arts. Now, how did he know I was in the martial arts? And he casually put his hand on my shoulder. He said, now, if you, you know, and he reaches across it like it was a small table. Mm-hmm. And he put his hand on my shoulder. He goes, you're in the, you do is you take the punk, and then I'll say, grab my head. But you know, behind me, mm-hmm. my head, it went to just drive my my nose into his forehead. This is what you do is you take your thick skull and you drive it in the punk's nose. Call it what you want. Glasgow kiss. West Texas takedown. He says, sometimes if you're lucky, the punk will bite through their own tongue. And now I'm scared of this guy. And then we were getting ready to leave. He said, hey, you're, you're in the entertainment business. Perhaps you'd like to be on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Take this. This is Johnny Carson's business number, his personal number, and this third number is an answering service. Just leave a message that you called and I'll get back to you. I had no way of directing him directly. So I got home and I went to a friend of mine who was involved with our karate school, his Mm -hmm. name was Chuck Curtis. And he was the captain of one of the most successful SWAT teams in the history of law enforcement. He took down a number of serial murders, including David Allen Lucas. And he said, with these mobsters being followed, you need to be able to protect yourself. And you need to have a high handle a gun. And of course, I was looking for a leery of guns. So anyway, I'm going to speed up the story for you. So he had me for six months out on the sheriff's firing range. He'd throw a rock at a target. I'd aim and fire. And he armed me with a Walther PPK, a James Bonner gun of choice. And then I realized I can't take the gun on the plane. I had to check that back then. You had to put it in a locked case that mm-hmm. the, the airlines had the key to. And then that was be very dysfunctional. So I'm in another city, and again, Diamond's there, invites me to have dinner with him, and he goes, you know, he tells me how it cost him $400,000 to buy off a judge for a murder he had committed. And I said, $400,000 is a lot of money. He says, not for a judge. And he says, now, if you ever want to have your wife killed, I can arrange for that. I can make that happen for you. He he, he did. He said, there'll be an accident. He said, there'll be an explosion. Boom. He said, no one would know you were behind the killing. He said, I just wanted to let you know that's another service I can provide. Now, I was re- this guy really scared me, but that's half the story. The rest of the story is even more interesting, but I told too much already and taken too much time. Wow. So your, your ability, your talent attracted some interesting audience right there. The, yeah, and that's, that's, that's four out of a dozen interesting stories. I think this may not be a bad time for us to make the reveal. What do you think? If we kind of let the audience, or do you want to wait a little bit? Is that okay with you? Oh, why not? Well, why don't you make the reveal? Well, I see with my mind and my fingers. It was 1963. 
I was told you will eventually lose all your sight. He had an eye disease, something they can't do anything about. My vision started going south when I was nine. My sister Lori and I both got scarlet fever. We don't know if this is what caused it, but it was the only thing that was the commonality between the two of us. And my retina, first my macula started dissolving, which is the center part of the retina. So within all, overnight, within a, a minutes almost, there was like a hat in front of my face, a hole. And then out of the hole, when uh, started losing the blood started uh, not going to the rest of the retina and so the my best corrected vision out of the corner was 20 over 400 which is twice as low as what's considered legally blind then that hole eventually encompassed my entire retina so the whole retina has been destroyed and so that's why my touch uh uh is so fine is the, the neural network that uh went to the visual cortex is now focused on the touch areas of the brain. So that's a, kind of the cool thing. Now, what are the odds of you and your sister though? And, and both of you took your life and you, you didn't use that as a crush to say, hey, because of this, I'm doing this. You still push the envelope. So I've read a lot of stories, mythical stories about Bo Jackson, right? There's a Bo Jackson jumped over a 40, you know, for this. And Bo Jackson ran a 40 in this fast. And Bo Jackson did this when he was a kid. Some of the stories I hear, one of your friends was talking about the stories that you were buying a motorcycle and you would go and you would go climbing. And why don't you talk about some of the wild things you did growing up? I've had a bunch of surgeries because of my high impact living. Well, I'll tell you the motorcycle story. I came up with a great idea for the blind and deaf driver. So I bought a motorcycle and I had a friend named Jim Blowers and I had another friend who was deaf named Roy Otterman. He was my auto mechanic. He would sit on the back and say, right, 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 right. He had a big old strong guy, but a little high speaky voice. Right, 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 right. And one day we were pulled over for suspected armed robbery. There was a Winchell's donut shop that was held up and we fit the profile. And uh, so we're pulled over. And then uh, there, were, the, there was only one small discrepancy with us being the suspects. The getaway driver wasn't blind, his accomplice wasn't deaf. And once we proved to the cop that we couldn't see the lights flashing or hear the siren blasting, I, re I received a ticket for driving while blind. He let us drive away. <laughs> True story. And then he uh, they switched judges right when it was my case. I was scared this last time I motor rode my motorcycle. I thought, what am I going to do? And I went up to judge, judge, I'm so sorry. I, I can't get a license because I can't see. He says, what? You can't see to get a license? Well, case dismissed. I thought, is that it? <laughs> he totally looked at the wow. thing from the opposite point of view. I thought he was going to yell at me. What the heck are you driving a motorcycle for when you can't see where you're going? Instead, he went, well, you can't see. Well, case dismissed. Anyway, so, um, and then I, uh, you know, I started in the martial arts March 5th, 1971. And we had one of the toughest karate schools in the country, actually in the, anywhere in the world. And to get a black belt under my karate instructor, John Murphy, you had to fight a 10 round bout with a fresh opponent each round. He figured if a boxer, you're gonna have a fresh fighter, Holmes, uh, Foreman, and so on. And they're all black belt, the ones yes. that are going up. So exactly. they're black belt, and they come fresh to you for three, for, for those rounds. For three minutes each one, exactly. And so it took me 13 years and three months of training before I was at, ready to take on the 10 fighters. But to start off with, my one of my first tests, I had to fight five two-minute rounds. 
and he had his testing across so it was across the border and we're barefisted and there was very very few rules we respected the knees the only place we didn't shoot were the knees and we were cup and a mouthpiece anyway so my green belt test which i had to fight 10 too many guys and i was I, it was August 2nd, 1973, it was 105 degrees outside with a 90 plus percent humidity in the, the oh dojo was this solid brick building, block cement block building, 30 by 50 foot, no windows, no air conditioning, not even a fan, one door to go in and out. 